All right, and welcome to the Uncomfortable Conversations podcast, the untold stories of the 3HO Kundalini Yoga community. I am your host, Guru Nishan, and I want to um, begin by sharing the intentions for why I started this podcast. I was born and raised in 3HO Kundalini Yoga community, and the people of our community matter to me. You matter to me. We matter to me. And these intentions um, are fluid and organic, and I share them at the beginning of every podcast. So number one, to break the veil of silence that is long permeated and continues to strangle the 3HO Kundalini Yoga community in the name of neutrality. Number two, to validate and help clarify the complex feelings of those who have joined this lifestyle, were born and raised into it, and or have practiced or taught kundalini yoga. Number three, to encourage active listening to uncomfortable conversations from our community as a revolutionary act of self and collective healing. Number four, to let survivors know that we see them, we believe them, we love them, and we will fight for their truth to be addressed. Number five, to let teachers who are denying, gaslighting, or spiritually bypassing know that what they are doing is willfully ignorant and re-traumatizing victims. Number six, to illuminate the inherent racism, homophobia, cultural misappropriation, and exploitation that perpetuates the teachings, 3HO lifestyle, and overall community ethos. Number seven, to stop the perpetuation of gaslighting and victim shaming by naming it for what it is. Number eight, to dismantle internalized shame, guilt, toxic positivity, and light washing mentality. Number nine, to honor all of the parts of ourselves that have been forgotten or silenced. Number 10, to honor every body that has come through our community, both named and unnamed. Number 11, to encourage people to do their own research, process their own emotions, get somatic therapy and other therapy and support as needed, draw your own conclusions, and to be critical thinkers rather than just blindly follow anyone. Please remember that your story matters. Please share it when you're ready. We're here to listen and to support you. So for today's episode, I want to introduce our guest who is named Jyoti Ma. She is a Siddha Yogini and Shakta Tantra practitioner. Before she transitioned into her spiritual life, she worked as a professional psychotherapist specializing in traumatic stress and addiction treatment. She owned one of the first outpatient clinics in the US that was devoted solely to the treatment of PTSD and related syndromes. She specialized in disassociative syndromes, including multiple personality disorder and provided supervision and training to a wide variety of professionals, advocates and interventionists. Her approach to supporting survivors of traumatic events included group and family-based dysfunctions, such as religious communities, social movements and political groups. 
She served as a clinical interventionist working with child protective services in several cases involving such community groups. In addition to providing trauma education and local debriefing support for a wide variety of crisis situations, she had numerous national media appearances as a public service and was asked at times to provide expert consultation to the US Senate and expert testimony in courts. After 14 years of practice, she began to move towards esoteric psychology, such as Kabbalah and metapsychological -psych system for self-healing, self-actualization, and self-mastery. Some of these principles and understandings have helped her gain a higher than average recovery rate for clients in her clinic. She also incorporated somatic therapy, bioenergetics, trans work, dream analysis, equine therapy for her clients. These expanding realizations via Kabbalah and other esoteric systems eventually caused her to close her clinic and go into a five-year sadhana to focus on mastering these esoteric techniques. During her travels and studies in India, she became immersed in the Kundalini tradition and saw many big gurus and magicians in India and actually intervened a few times to disrupt their spells and free their hypnotized followers. She even had a few gurus ask for her help based on her long experience with esoteric psychology. This intersection of her clinical and yogic experience led to her seeing and counseling seekers who had left these groups led by these fake gurus. She's consulted with and helped many who left such communities, including many who left 3HO over the past 20 years. She is the co-founder of Enlightened Life Temple, a 501c3 that has been providing information, training, and resources in the Eastern and Western paths of consciousness awakening for nearly 25 years. She teaches groups and mentors individuals in the Siddha and Shakta Tantra fields of practice, and offers mentoring and coaching in the past path of integral consciousness for self-healing and life mastery. This truly is only a slice of her exceptional background in the area of trauma counseling and support for individuals and members of communities and groups. She's here with us today to offer specific tips to share with our listeners for self-care, for managing the triggers and for processing the emotional impacts and complexity of our 3HO community dynamic. So as listeners, I wanted you to know that today is a little bit of a different uh, episode because I really wanted to offer a way for us to be processing our own trauma as well as the triggers that may be coming up from you listening to the past uh, 13 episodes that we've had so far. So I want to welcome you, Jyoti Ma, um, for being with us, and thank you so much. Thank you for having me, and thank you for that lovely introduction. That was a slice of your intro um, and experiences, <laughs> seriously. Um, but I wanted to give enough perspective to really give that Western and Eastern approach, because I think that's a really um, key element of, of um looking at trauma. And as many people might know, looking for a therapist today that specifically specializes in this level of complex trauma is not easy. And no. um, I think you can bring a wealth of knowledge to support listeners here today. So would you mind starting and sharing what, um, what makes you even want to uh, share with us and, and specifically with our community? 
You know, for many years, I've had a passion for helping people um, cope with and recover from extreme situations. I'm not sure what, uh, you know, drove me to that other than I wasn't particularly interested in, um, you know, superficial psychoanalysis or anything like that. I wanted to help the people that I felt would be obvious that they needed the most help. And at the time I began working with the trauma survivors, PTSD was a, a fairly new diagnosis. And I was contemporary with many of the people who helped contribute to creating the diagnosis and identifying it. Um, so I know from all my years of experience that um, trauma survivors can be misidentified by clinicians. And I also know from my years in India and yogic practice that um, trauma survivors can be limited by uh, the thought forms, uh, thought ideas and concepts of clinical psychology. I certainly found that to be the case for myself and my own clients, um, which is what I was always looking for what would really help them because talking to a, a therapist it really does help and getting feedback and information is also very helpful. Um, but we have so many other adaptations that we make to trauma that are not clearly delineated in any of the clinical settings. And uh, those things were instrumental to my own conversion of consciousness. And um, I've helped many trauma survivors make that same leap. Obviously, when I was in India, I mean, when I was based in the US before I left my clinic, I worked with a lot of religious cults, but they were primarily Christian fundamentalist cults and, um, you know, other kinds of kind of new age cults that were somewhat small. Some of them were rather large, like, you know, the polygamous groups there every, that are everywhere. They're very large organizations. Um, and um, a lot of the evangelical Christian groups have, um, you know, pretty high demand on their group members and dysfunctional systems and families are born are there and children are born into it and um when i was in india then and i saw the big gurus with so many like some of them have millions of followers and yet i could easily see that it was delusional you know it was they were creating illusion and they were recruiting people to follow them probably for money for fame or other ego needs that you know, that we see in the narcissistic spectrum. And um, I realized, you know, these people are seeking something bigger. They're seeking something beyond the human. And um, they're not limiting themselves to these sort of fundamentalist Christian groups, like, you know, as they do, they have very strict, rigid rules and all that. But these big gurus were teaching people, you can be more than you realize, which is true. That is the path of yoga. And they will use actual yoga yogic principles and philosophies as a part of the the net of deception they would weave and they would also encourage people to use practices and techniques that would put them into more suggestible states and some of the followers i couldn't believe they were so hypnotized and my past experience made it possible for me to just have a, a few minutes conversation with them in the right way and they would, it would start to break, the hypnosis would start to break. And um, 
so I was able to help a lot of people during my travels in India who were caught up in these kinds of scenarios. And mind you, I was in India for almost 17 years without coming back to America. I would occasionally go out to New Zealand where I had a, a home also, just to because you have to go out with visas and all that. But I always went back to, but I wanted to study with um, accomplished yogis and accomplished yoginis and um, masters in various traditions who had mastered that field of practice. And I didn't so much uh, care for the devotional uh, guru ashrams and all of that where everybody's worshiping the guru because the real truth of yoga is the guru is you. You're the only one. You are the one that leads yourself from darkness to light, which is what guru means. And we're all doing that all the time. So I felt um, maybe even more passionate about helping these people who were caught in a net of deception when they were really looking for spiritual truth. Yeah. And so for so many people who have the experience of being in a spiritual group, a group that focuses on, on spiritual tradition, but yet uses it sort of manipulatively and puts a lot of high demand onto the members, um, they often throw out the spiritual path altogether once they break free of the hypnosis and they blame it on the spiritual path. But it really is just part of our journey to find out what's real and what isn't. Mm -hmm. And it can be a great opportunity for a kind of awakening that we wouldn't get any other way. So I've learned to see that the shadow serves the light and um, yet at the same time to shine a bright light on the shadow because that's how you're going to awaken more quickly. Then when I came back, the whole yoga asana wave had happened in, in my absence. When you came back into America. Yes, when I came back to America, um, there were asana classes everywhere, every day, all over the place. And they had, you know, not too much of the true yoga philosophy in the mix. Mostly it was like an exercise class where you might do a little bit of pranayama breathing. Um, and that's when I started seeing other groups that were forming around these asana teachers, yoga asana teachers. And then I ran into again uh, on the other side, you know, like previously I had met some people who were in the Yogi Bhajan group in the, in the mid nineties, I would say right before I went to India. And they were telling me horrible things that had happened to people in that group. And I was giving them supportive counseling and, and help and education. You know, a lot of what people need is just education because we don't know how to think about these things. We don't get enough information about it. And um, so I realized that, you know, Yogi Bhajan had a thing going on that um, I then found out was like the thing that the gurus in India have, but he had also built in the whole um, yoga asana marketing model and tra training and teacher training and specialty training and what he calls white tantra, which was kind of odd to me because I had met um, some people in the actual white tantra lineage, which is the Chinese um, tantra tradition. So I thought, well, that's kind of odd. Why is he teaching that? He, he's a Sikh and, you know, um, but I started to realize, you know, the layers of what had gone on and the empire that he had built. 
And I also uh, found some very unique aspects to that particular group and how it evolved. And that involved for me um, meeting disciples of his who were running their own high demand groups and cultivating their own followers and positioning themselves as the guru. And um, I ended up in my first five years back going around disrupting a lot of these um, group mind uh, hypnotic uh, milieus that they had created. You know, these people were often young people in their 20s, which I know Bajan also looked for young people in their 20s. This is a time of life when we're trying to sort out who are we, what do we believe, and we're very kind of vulnerable and susceptible to um, getting on the wrong track because we don't have enough information yet. And the, these people were replicating things that I only recently when, um, you know, after Premka, the Premka book came out in um, last year, in the beginning of the year, and the group rose up and people started telling the stories. Well, of course, I already had heard Premka's story from other people who knew her, who had, had come to me for assistance with their own healing. Um, but hearing the rest of it was... Um, in some cases, it made sense out of things I had seen in these other disciples cults or groups that um, were not, I, I couldn't find a place for them. I couldn't understand where they get that from, you know. And then I realized, oh, it's a, now it's a part of Bajan's thought reform program. You know, this is the new way you're going to think and this is the new way you're going to behave. And um, so subsequent to I that, I break off groups that you had found that were students of Yogi Bhajan, it started making more sense what you had seen in those kind of little break off groups? Right, for example, um, one, one man who was running a group with his wife and, and running a ashram, you know, and <laughs> had probably never been to India in his life, but he, um, he was uh, doing things like picking out certain women students and giving them the title secretary. And I didn't, I didn't realize that that was Bajan's pattern. There was you know, a formula for that. Mm. It was a formula, yeah. Right. And um, many of the women that were in that particular group told me they, uh, their experience was being raped. And he, yet he would say it's a consort practice, which of course isn't consort practice. But he, um, you know, they had severe trauma from it and um yet at the same time they're kind of in the inner circle which where the the hypnosis and special control right it's very is more intense yeah these these kinds of groups operate in small in sequences of circles going outward so there's an inner circle which is a guru and only his closest people which would be the secretaries in his case and probably his a few other key people, bodyguards and things like that. And then the next circle out is people who kind of serve the inner circle and organize on their behalf and run all the enterprises and, uh, you know, follow the leadership that comes from the inner circle. And then the next circle out is people who may be interested in the teaching, the training, and they want to become trainers or the white tantra groups, um, you know, all of these various programs, they're like layers and so when you're in the outer and you're just come to a to a kundalini yoga class, um, 
you don't see any of that. It's hidden in within the walls of each circle coming closer to the middle. Mm -hmm. And um, that's one thing that I've seen this um, survivor population grapple with is um, how could it happen and I didn't know. And then on the other hand, the people closer in saying, um, how could it happen and you don't know. But yet these uh, walls are built deliberately in order to keep people on board. Um, and the other thing that people often don't realize is that the, these gurus or uh, fake ones, of course, <laughs> consider them fake because you are the guru. So anybody that's not you is not a guru. It's not real. Like don't, let, don't let anyone tell you I'm going to be your guru because you can be, you're the only one who can be your guru. You might find someone who can teach you some skills to bring forth your guru self, but um, that's the kind of person you want to look for, not somebody that tells you I'm it. Uh, it's kind of funny to think that no one else can be it but you. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so like they, um, they had some differences in uh, um, the yogic practices that they're practicing as well. One thing that happened during the time I was back in the West, I went after being in America a few years, I went back to New Zealand because it was a culture shock, honestly, for me, having lived in India in a very, you know, sort of spiritually based communities and um, observing the proper yogic tenets and philosophies and having good mentors and um, then coming back and seeing this materialization, you know, like having the asanas that we did in the ashram, there were not many, and we did pranayams and kriyas, of course, but the master, we called him the teacher, the master. He was not that he was our master and we were his servants. It was that he was a master of that field of practice, and he had already um, actualized and fully elevated his kundalini. And so coming back here and seeing all that, I thought, oh, they're missing the point, because if you really were doing a kundalini practice, you wouldn't be involved in any group anymore, and you you would be a, an independent, empowered person. And um, so there's a lot of distortions in the, the philosophy, and there's a lot of distortions in the practices um, that I think has also helped me help other people because they would say to me, oh, I would go there and I feel so good. And I, I feel like I'm, you know, you're like in an elevated state of mind. And really you're just high because of some of the techniques that are used. And um, it floods the brain with specific neurochemistry and it really puts you in a euphoric state. And that's a great thing if you're practicing by yourself to take yourself into that state. But if somebody's giving you that state and then programming you with new ideas and new thoughts and new beliefs and suppression of your own self and suppression of your own identity, all it's doing is making you more susceptible to that because the whole point of the spiritual path east or west is to become more receptive to spiritual energy and wisdom and consciousness, which is, it's just there. And it doesn't come from any specific person or any specific tradition, but it's within us. Yeah. And um, yet this, these people position themselves that the wisdom comes from them. They're the ones that have the knowledge, they're the ones that have the teachings, and then people attribute that to them. Yes. When and in fact, their, their, their epiphany or their life experience to right. this practice or meeting this person 
as if it yeah. was their own um, abilities or, or their own soul calling them to that. Exactly. So they don't know really what their own soul is calling them to. And because they've sort of, you know, been asked to forfeit that. And in mm. a very trusting way, they forfeited it and believed that they were going to get something great. And, you know, in a way they got uh, the inner circle, at least inherited these um, money making entities, you know, that were built on the, the backs of people who were injured and oftentimes and people who were maybe financially exploited and certainly labor exploitation is a big part of high demand groups as well. People are made to do continual work in some of these groups in order that you don't have time to think, you don't have time to reflect, you're so exhausted and then you may have- Can you, you, might... can you stop for a second and, and uh, give us an explanation of what high demand group means? Sure. I have some really um, key points about high demand groups that I wanted to share here. Um, the reasons I'm asking just for a name of it first is because when all this came out, um, you know, I feel like, you know, I had processed a lot of our community, especially like hypocrisy and infidelity. And like at 15, I kind of had left the path and kind of kept the parts that I really liked, which was my community and the relationships and Kind of the health consciousness and certain aspects but i would have never prior to this year like definitively said i was raised in a cult you know and what helped me a lot was reading some of the academic information that named cults high demand groups it was an academic language for it that to me landed in me a little more and it also gave me a sense of like, oh, there's a formula here and it doesn't matter the ideology. It doesn't matter the teachings. It doesn't matter the specifics. Every quote high demand group, whether it's Christian theology or this theology has these types of things. And right. so they definitely have very similar uh, characteristics they, that they operate by. And I want to make the point, which is so important right now, uh, that sometimes oftentimes these kinds of groups have a leader and the leader is considered special in some way like his special knowledge or special information or a special spiritual status or um, just that he's a leader and so therefore he deserves respect for that and um, not all high demand groups are centered around a leader there are high demand groups that center around common beliefs or a philosophy um, mm. that everybody invest in that. This is our belief. This is our philosophy. These are our rules. These are our disciplines. And they kind of do it as a group um, commitment and create demands on themselves and demands on each other based on the ideology that they are attached to. Uh, so it doesn't always mean um, a charismatic uh, leader runs it a charismatic leader, but oftentimes, in, certainly in the case of 3HO, it, it was a charismatic leader. And um, so absolute authoritarianism without any meaningful accountability is number one. And that can be on the part of inner circle people or the leader himself. In other words, I'm the absolute authority. Uh, you follow whatever he says. He's the absolute authority. And we don't question him. He is not held to account for anything. Uh, so there's no meaningful accountability. There's no tolerance for questions or crit critical inquiry. So you're mm -hmm. not supposed to question certain things. You're supposed to believe them and 
and do them and follow, you know, like all the followers do. No meaningful financial disclosure regarding budget or expenses, such as an independently audited financial statement. We see several core corruptions in these groups that are common across the board. First is uh, financial abuse and inappropriate financial um, arrangements or financial um, um, operating operating, you know, the way they operate. And it's usually kept very secret and no one can know about it. But underneath the secret, it often involves, you know, financial crimes that shouldn't be um, allowed or wouldn't be allowed in any other group that had appropriate financial accountability. Um, this would include also uh, not paying people, getting them to work for the group or getting them to work for the entity, uh, the organizations and not getting paid for it or getting paid very minimally. There's many, there's some big fake gurus out there right now and they're doing exactly the same thing. I'm already seeing people from their ashrams saying that we have to sleep on the floor in a metal shed and we have to work all day and we don't get paid and we don't get adequate food. You know, this is another part of the picture. They control every aspect of your behavior. Um, cultivating an unreasonable fear about the outside world, like catastrophe or evil people or a common enemy that's gonna persecute us. Um, this creates a bond in the group. It creates a psychological bond. They have, we have a common enemy. And oftentimes that common enemy becomes anyone who leaves and speaks out about what happened, then the whole group will attack that person because um, we have a fear of anything being spoken outside of or against what we all believe or what we're told to believe. Um, identification and fear of a common enemy is often used to create stronger group bonds and um, people buy into it quite easily as we've seen in the last week in our own government. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. I was just gonna point out that I find that really interesting um, with some of the elder generation or kind of senior generation, when the name Premka comes up, there is like this, it's like this shut down. Like, it's like, I, I literally witness people go back to their, the aversion of the 1980s story of what they got implanted in them about her. And I found that just so interesting because it's, there's no context to it. It's just immediately back. And so it really touches on what you just said. Absolutely. Um, the, that's a common thing in all of these kinds of groups. They shun anyone who leaves. They shun anyone who speaks out. They engage in um, group humiliation practices and exercises, shaming a person in front of the entire group. These are tremendously psychological psychologically damaging and spiritually damaging experiences for people. But this is the way that, that the group is. And if you step out of line, you know that's what's gonna happen to you because you've seen it happen to other people. And maybe you've even started participating in that yourself. You know, mm -hmm. certainly people in um, leadership in the, in the inner circle and the next circle out often adopt the exact behavior of the authoritarian leader and hold the same beliefs. And we see this in a lot of the disciples um, of Bhajan right now who are out there cultivating their own following and um, giving these same, you know, uh, statements and beliefs about people that say that they were assaulted and people who say they were harmed by the group. They're 
all liars and they're they were paid by our enemy and you know those are the kinds of things that that right. happen um yeah so the group also holds that there's no legitimate reason to leave and uh former followers are always wrong if they leave and they're also uh attributed to uh, that person is negative, that person isn't fully developed, they're not awake, or um, they're operating in the lower chakras, or whatever the belief is, but it's something negative about that person who leaves the group. It's, there's nothing wrong with the group, and there's no reason to leave the group, then it's something wrong with them. Mm. You know, that's a part of uh, the dynamic and thought reform as well. At the same time, former men members relate the same kinds of stories about abuse and reflect uh, a same pattern of grievances. So the story that came out last year was followed by many, many stories that were very similar and often exactly the same, especially in the case of many of the uh, people who were born in the cult and the experiences they had as children. Mm. Um, so when there's so many reports of the same kinds of behaviors and the same kinds of abuse, um, it's, it's virtually impossible to deny it. Uh, and that's another sign that it's a high demand group, that there's many people speaking out about abuses. Um, there are records, books, news articles, or broadcast reports that document the abuses of the group or the leader. Certainly we've seen that. We have a podcast going now for that very purpose. Um, but more importantly, there were Time Magazine articles in the 70s. There were newspaper articles. There were other really large publications that completely there got there were. Like whitewashed or not looked at. Even the even Kate felt... Um, you know, rape incident, uh, public uh, court documents and prim like these things have been in public record. But as a group, we were collectively trained to not look at those things. Right, right. I remember being in a, a similar fake guru kind of dynamic in uh, India and in an ashram. And the reports kept started coming out about what the guru is really doing, all the abuse he's carrying out. And the result was the whole ashram um, banned all internet. You were not allowed to access the internet because all the stories were coming out on the internet. So in India, it's pretty easy to take out any internet connection in these remote ashrams. Mm -hmm. uh, so if you can't cut people off from outside information, then you have to program them that whatever they're saying isn't true. You're, we're here, we know what's true. They don't really know. They're liars, they're telling stories about us because why we don't know. I mean, there's never a good reason for why people would make up stories about you unless they're paid by the enemy or they're corrupted by the enemy or they're not developed enough or they're just trying to cause trouble. You know, there's so many deflections and ways of denying. Um, and yet those document, uh, documentary um, books and resources, interviews, articles, websites, are there. And when there's so many there, that's a sign that it's a high demand group. Um, another important thing about the 3HO and Yogi Bhajan in particular is that back in the 80s, when my clinic was still very active, um, the, the high demand expert Rick Ross uh, looked into Yogi Bhajan and he told um, everyone and wrote many articles saying this is a classic high demand group. Wow. And 
so it's been known outside of the group for a long time, but the group itself has been um, conditioned, you know, to, to reject that and to not focus on that or don't get in negative mind, you know, uh, which really I mean, don't ever say anything negative about the group or anybody else. Um, when really life is a mix of everything. It's a mix of light and shadow, good and bad, uh, you know, beneficence and maleficence. And so there's, it'd be pretty strange if there was nothing shadowy in the group, but yet that's the, they take these extreme positions um, and it's conditioned. It takes time to condition people to operate from that group mind. Um, followers feel they can never be good enough. I've heard so many stories from people like that. You know, you're, even now in te some teacher trainings, the, the trainees are saying they're so mean and they're so uh, domineering and they're so abusive and they shut down your emotions and I, you don't feel like you're ever going to make it or you could make it. And then some people realize, I don't want to make it. It doesn't, it's not a healthy environment. You know, it's not a positive experience. There's a lot of um, negativity and you're not good enough. And I have to tell you what you're going to do to be good enough and you have to do it or else you're still not going to be good enough. And then even after you do it, there's some reason you're not good enough. You got to do another practice, another sadhana, another 40 day something. Right, or 100 days or an extreme fasting. All of these things wear down your resistance. They wear down your cognitive processes. When the brain gets depleted of nutrition, overstressed, um, lack of sleep, uh, overwork, uh, the, and the constant demands of the group to, to um, perform and believe and support and you know whatever they tell you to do, um, people feel um, like they can't resist. They can't say no and they can't stand up and they don't know what to think anymore. And it's easier just to go along after a while. You see similar developments in people in prisoner of war camps, sadly. Yeah. And I've watched some videos of some of the 3HO programs and they are um, definitely using excessive uh, physical exercise and excessive uh, what they call pranayama, but it's just excessive breathing patterns often at a high pace like a hyperventilation and um, if you don't keep up you're a loser and if you don't keep going you know but this is a form of um, we have different levels of, we have mind control, which is people making subtle suggestions to you and using language in a way that hooks your brain chemistry into the scenario. And uh, then there's a mild hypnosis that they can give just by talking in a certain rhythm or touching you in a certain way. And then there's more advanced uh, language manipulations and uh, mental manipulations that move from mind control more into thought reform. And these usually involve um, daily routines as well as how you're going to think, repetitions of certain phrases, setting up with keywords, um, which, you know, I you know 3HO has a lot of keywords. And um, these keywords make you a part of the, stay a part of the group mind. Um, but they ultimately also have some, um, 
programs that really constitute brainwashing because you're made to hold a physical position, a stress position for a long period of time. And if you look that up, you'll see that that's something that they use in military training, which is brainwashing, and they that they use in um, brainwashing of prisoners or even people in social groups or societies or government transitions, you know, they, they get people to do extreme physical activity to exertion and beyond. Uh, so being told to hold a stress position for a long period of time while you're hyperventilating, uh, and then we're telling you how great you are that you made it through, that's a type of brainwashing. And then once you've made it through, now you're on the other side, you're part of the better, you're part of the next inner circle. And so now you have a status and uh, now your labor can be exploited because you can now be a, a servant to the whole program next time. And, you know, all these different ways of keeping people so saturated uh, with, with uh, adrenaline and stress chemistry that they, they become less and less able to become independent. Um, on the other hand, you do have people who uh, see it and question it right away and then over time realize it and leave. And a lot of those people that left early on are um, the ones that have put it out there what exactly was going on and what was happening. And even some of them didn't really know the full extent of it. Mm -hmm. um, and then the group or the leader or the philosophy we follow is always right, 100%. Everything else is wrong, so no questions. The group leader or philosophy is the exclusive means of knowing truth or receiving validation. No other process of discovery is really acceptable or credible. Uh, the group, here's a, some of the common things we see when you walk into an ashram, the group leader, the so-called guru, he's sitting in a special chair up front. He's elevated on a platform. Sometimes the chair is very ornate. Uh, you know, he comes in with an entourage. He exits with an entourage. He's not really approachable. He always has a special chair elevated platform. Right away, that's a very easy method of mind control. And I have questioned the Kundalini Yoga um, teachers before, why do you sit up on a platform above your students? That is a, a establishing a superiority immediately. And uh, of course, in the real yoga path, we don't act like that. We sit on the floor in a group usually in a circle, you know, the master might walk in and talk to us or walk out, but we're mostly on our own, just doing whatever we learned, you know, mm -hmm. and um, we don't see ever, even if he did sit down, he sat on the floor with us. We never had, um, you know, the big throne in the front and the grand entry and all of that that you see with a lot of these gurus. Mm -hmm. um, uh, group leaders are surrounded by an entourage or inner circle. The inner circle might have the task of deflecting questions or keeping members away from the leader um, or not asking him too many questions or you can only talk to him if he wants to talk to you, that kind of positioning. Uh, there's the system of hierarchy and those outer and inner circles. And um, the training or program follows a pattern from a simple involvement like you go to a yoga class or extreme programs designed to prove your worth or break you down further, indoctrinate you further. High demand groups often abuse, neglect, and program the children who are born into 
the group or whose parents joined the group. Children, I've never known a, a high demand group of any kind and any tradition that the children were not abused. It's just an unfortunate reality. The leader of the group cannot afford to have family bonds happening. The parents bond with their children, they will do everything to protect their child. But if that bond is disrupted and they believe that the leader says they're okay wherever they are, then it's easier to continue on. So they often will do things like that. And many times, I mean, in some very extreme uh, Christian groups, the the ministerial class, which is the hierarchy, you know, the ministers and preachers, they will have sex with all the children, male or female, when they're very young, they start abusing them sexually. Um, this also creates a person who has never had their own free will, has never brought forth their own identity, but has been suppressed. And so children of these groups um, suffer huge psychological damage and physical damage as well, oftentimes. Um, this kind of uh, neglect or abuse and programming of the children sometimes includes parent-child separation, sending the children to live with other members of the cult or the group or to live in a group by themselves. I've seen some um, Eastern gurus come over here and and tell the parents, you're, you know, your, your children need to be free. You never got to be free. That's why you're not good enough. And so the children should live in this house by themselves and take care of, you know, take care of themselves. The older ones will teach the younger ones. And, and really they're just neglected and they're in emotional pain. And so they abuse each other or they uh, try to escape each other. It's just horrible what happens to the children in these groups. Um, in a lot of children's ashrams. So they, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it's always uh, very common in a high demand group that the children will be taken from the parents in some way, or they will at least be um, raised in a very abusive fashion. Wow. Then um, the leadership attempts to control the members' thoughts, behaviors, emotions, and actions. I know many people from um, the 3HO group have said to me, we weren't allowed to have emotions. We were told it was negative and we had to get in a positive mind and we had to do practices. If we said we were sad or depressed or anxious or scared, we were shunned and shamed and you know forced to do excessive practice and things like that. So they're trying to control, you know, because your emotions inform you mm. as to what is in your best interest. And so if we can cut you off from that, then you won't ever question that this isn't in your best interest. Um, denial of all emotional expressions, such as sadness, fear, anger, anxiety, and forced suppression of group members' emotions um, so that they come to believe that's the normal thing, you know, and then that's okay. That's the way it should be. And then control over basic needs. And we see this, you know, from ranging from uh, weekend intensive seminars that some high demand groups hold where you can't go to the bathroom unless they say you can go to the bathroom. You can't eat or drink unless they say you can eat or drink. Um, but it takes form in communities as well that live together in these kinds of groups. Um, we're going to tell you what your diet should be. Uh, we're going to tell you whether you can eat or not eat. Um, there's a high demand for constant work, keep you busy so you don't think too much and also carry out all the work that the leadership and inner circle don't wanna do. Um, they control your bathing, how you bathe, when you bathe. You know, the, I've heard so much about the cold showers at 3 a.m. and 
uh, those kinds of things. Uh, how you sleep, what are your sleeping arrangements, how much you sleep, how much you can't sleep, um, arranged marriages, uh, forced practices like um, long hours of reciting religious scriptures, whether you want to or not, long and extremely or, and or extremely intense physical exercises, long and extreme prayer, meditation, long and extreme pranayams or kriyas. Yoga is not a path of long and extreme. Yoga is a path of gentle love, patience with yourself, and slowly moving from one state of awareness to the next. And even bathroom breaks can be controlled by the leaders in their inner circle. And I know that um, some people in the bhajan group have told me they were told how to have a bowel movement, what position you have to be in. Um, Everything. And, I was going to say not only the cold shower, but what we should do in the shower and what we should wear when we're in the shower and the correct motions and where to put the water first. And there was just so many elements of even like when to have sex and how to have sex and, you know, how often and, and just right, so like combing different. the hair, combing it this way and then combing it this way. And like, and I was a kid, so I don't remember all of these things, but I know that there were right. so many. Well, and you, you can't cut your hair and you can't wear the clothes you want to wear. You have to wear the clothes everybody says you have to wear. And, you know, a, a human being becomes who they are by exploration of their own will and their own desires. And they're not allowed to have any desires that get fulfilled. All their whole hope for their life and for their, their own self is abandoned at a very young age for, for people that are born in the cult or that come at a young age with their parents. And um, the parents also, you know, are subject to these things. You have to wear this, these clothes, you have to wear this color, um, you have to do this much SIVA, you have to do, you know, there's a lot of have to's and that's what makes it a high demand group. A lot of rules and then consequences for violating those rules, consequences of um, shaming, or being called out or punishment, like, you know, now you're gonna to have to do a hundred day fast or uh, the only way you're gonna get through this is to go and do this practice for six hours or, you know, it's extreme. So those are the signs of a high demand group. And, um, you know, for people who are still involved in the group and maybe have family members that left or friends that left, um, this can be very hard for them to hear this kind of information uh, because objectivity is lost long ago. And it, this introduces such um, oppositional information to everything that you've been told. Mm. Or maybe you stop thinking about it just because you had to do that in order to be able to survive and keep going. And uh, so the, the um, normal reaction is psychological protection, meaning I have to deny that. I, denial is a, um, a protective stance. And sometimes we can't control it, you know? Like we say, addicts and alcoholics have denial. And it's a real thing. It's a real program that's running in their brain that they don't have control over. Mm -hmm. And so we have to learn ways to break through those programs and ways to go past the denial and understand the denial is like, running on automatic and it's not what you're really feeling deep inside deep inside there's probably massive confusion and maybe some guilt because you recognize yeah these 
things did happen or I did hear about that and I didn't do anything or um, I didn't realize it was that bad and now I do, but I don't know anything else. I, I mean, you give up your identity and you give up your, your life and your motivation for anything else. And then, um, you know, oftentimes, and especially in the case of 3HO, a lot of the inner circle is uh, older people now. And it's much harder to break through the conditioning and the mind, the group mind. Um, and I, and then you get polarization, you know, when the, when the stories start coming out and all the victims are saying, this is what happened to me and this is what happened to me. And there's so many of them. And they're on the extreme of saying the truth has to be known. The truth has to be spoken and this has to be stopped and it needs to be disrupted. And on the other side, you have people that are coping on the other extreme by saying, uh, okay, maybe it happened, but it wasn't that bad. Uh, Yogi Bhajan was the only one who did it. I didn't have anything to do with it. None of us had anything to do with it, you know, which is impossible because you couldn't build this whole thing with one person who isn't even here anymore and it's still going. But that's their way of coping and trying to survive it. Um, and I suppose that, you know, they have some other interests too, like the group's been around a long time now and uh, they have a lot of enterprises and do they really want to, disrupt all that and you know so you get polarizations there's also different ways people adopt adapt to the trauma so and it usually falls out along gender lines but it can there can be crossover of course it's, it's just in general the men will tr replicate the behavior of the abusive leader and they'll act like him and think like him and take charge like him and hurt people or abuse people or be a mean or be a bully. And then there's the other people, typically women, who will adapt uh, to a victim identity and say, I better be passive. I need to be careful. Uh, don't upset the, anything. Try to be quiet. Try to be invisible. Go along. You know, don't complain about abuse or rape. Um, you know, and the, then you have the family disruption, which is an, an extreme trauma for both the parents and the child. And, um, you know, for the survivor that was a child who comes to the point of being able to speak to what happened, to be told by their own parent or their own community, um, that's not true, we don't wanna hear it, it wasn't that bad. You know, these things are coming from their own adaptation, which is to deny, which is what they were taught to do, you know, when it was happening. And they don't know how to do anything else. And so you get these uh, dichotomies of, you know, all good, all bad. And there's not really any all, all good, all bad. There's just damaged people on both extremes that are coping in whatever way they can. Yes. I want to dive into that a little bit more um, in, in the complexity. I mean, obviously, there's a bunch of people that are kind of like, for lack of better words, kind of like in a denier camp. They're not even reading, paying attention to anything that's gone on, but I'm not speaking to those people. I want to speak to those that are listening to this podcast. Some of those might be, those people might be listening to and bless your hearts if you are, but I want to talk about those that are listening, that are dealing with the complexity. Let's say they're a person speaking out about trauma or, or like an abuse that happened to them, or they know three or four of the women that were their friends that have been abused and yet their parents are still heavily involved. And I, I wonder if you could speak to that a little bit because that's a lot of the complexity here where people on the outside might be like, 
shut it all down, all this stuff. And then there's those people that are in that are like my, I have people that I love in this community and I don't want it to be just either or, but but I know there's truth that isn't being spoken. Maybe some of the, my peers might be like feeling a lot of anger and rage coming up against their family members that are in that other denial space and can't see it. Maybe they're like, I respect that some people might've been hurt, but my experience was good. And like, um, what do you do? Like, can you help people know what to do in that space as they come across that? Um, you know, the sad reality is that as we become adults, if we've had difficult childhoods and our parents were complicit in it, it might be better for us not to feel like we have to have a relationship with them. You know, we create our own family when we become adults. We find like-minded people and people who uh, believe us and believe our stories and support us. And that becomes um, our functional family. And sometimes that is the case that you, you're not going to get that acknowledgement or validation that you want from your loved one or from your family or from your other, from former friends or people who are still involved. Um, it's very frustrating for survivors and the rage is real and it's tangible and it, it deserves to be respected and it deserves to be healed in the proper ways with the proper um, help. And to come to that point of, you know, feeling the influx of your own power, sometimes for the first time in your life, that's what's behind the amount of anger and rage. And that's what makes it so powerful when it gets expressed. And um, it's important to not uh, think about what anybody else is going to say or do before you say or do whatever you're going to do. Just be true to yourself. Be true to your emotions. Don't suppress them anymore. If you're angry, express it. And if your loved ones don't validate it, stop holding out your beggar bowl to people that don't have charity. You know, if they don't have it in their hearts to say to you, I'm sorry, it shouldn't have happened. What can I do to help? Um, then you need to move on. You need to find that support and that validation from somewhere else. And sometimes that comes to the, uh, your co-survivors, you know, and there's trauma bonds that happen uh, when people are abused as a group, like the children were in this case. And some of the children were abusers and some of the children were the victims. And that's a typical thing in childhood because children are like everybody else. They don't, except they don't have the same capacity to adapt. They're resilient, but they don't have capacity to adapt because they're psychologically immature. And, um, but yet they have these feelings and they're out of control. And maybe they do beat up another kid because some other kid beat them up. And that's the only way they ever learn to express their frustration or their pain or their anger. Um, and then you have the victims of, of the ones that adapted that way. And they adapted by, you know, maybe trying to fight back or trying to resist and then maybe got hurt worse. Uh, or ultimately, a lot of them have told me they just tried to be invisible. So they wouldn't get targeted for the abuse. Mm -hmm. um, they feel oftentimes like 
they're drawn to each other afterwards when they become adults. And the, as the stories have come out and they started to speak to it, a lot of them, and I know that the organization also facilitated uh, group calls in the beginning and let people tell their stories. And um, these things are rather re-traumatizing uh, because you're in the same group, you're with the same people, you're talking about the stories that happened, but there's no validation. You know, that was one thing that I, uh, I thought the listening that they did was a little bit superficial. And of course, I wouldn't expect the people in the organization who still believe the group mind, who still follow all the rules to be the ones that could provide that. Right. It's, um, you know, it's asking too much for both sides. It's asking too much for the injured people to go to the people who facilitated the injury. And it's asking too much for those who adapted and survived by uh, facilitating the injury or denying it or uh, ignoring it to be the ones that are going to solve it. It just doesn't work. So I see that the group is, you know, in their own way, thinking that they're trying to do something beneficial, but they are probably re-traumatizing the survivors and a lot of what they're doing. And um, I don't think it's a good thing or useful or healing for survivors to go to the people who were integral to the pain that happened right. for the healing. I think it should be a completely different process. Um, but yeah, there is that polarization. And if people can be aware of those polarizations and be aware, um, it's frustrating though. I know as a survivor, you look at them and you think, how can they be continuing? How can they go on thinking You know that it's, that it's viable somehow in the face of this truth that's coming out. And I think those people on that polarized side of it are just so stuck in the, in the group mind. They're just, you know, there's a broken person inside of there somewhere. Yeah. And they need, they need even more specialized help than the survivors. But what we, they don't need is for us to hold to compassion in that it's our job to be compassionate for them. Meaning oh. what I mean is if you could speak to, if somebody is in a position where they're starting to feel anger and rage, they are reading the stories, they are paying attention and yet they have family members, maybe they're still in the community, but they're noticing, they're, they're actively participating in this process of listening and seeing the reality of the historical abuse. But they have family members who are choosing not to look and read and notice as they're feeling this level of complexity and rage and anger, would you not suggest that they're trying to convince this other person to see what they see because they're coming up against, that's a lot for someone to hold, isn't it? Yes, no, I don't think the survivor's only place to be compassionate is to be compassionate for themselves and not subject themselves to re-traumatization by trying to knock at a door that gets slammed in your face. That's not a healing way um you know if your parents or siblings or friends are still involved to the point that they say oh i'm sorry that happened to you but i had a good experience there's no empathy in that statement there's not even an acknowledgement of how serious it is it's just a way for them to get back into their denial because you disrupted their uh their thought their thought conditioned thought you know i would not suggest that childhood trauma survivors go back to the 
parents that are still involved and that haven't broken free. I think they need the distance and they need time around other people who are healthy people who can listen to them and support them and validate their stories. And I think people who go through a common trauma together in which all the various adaptations came out um, probably shouldn't see each other too much either without a facilitated purpose. In other words, if they wanted to process uh, their experiences, knowing some of them injured some of the other ones, it would have to be an objective facilitator to help that process. Otherwise, they're just going to get back in the same cycle. You know, it, a, a person who abused somebody because they were in a programmed mind to do it, uh, or because they didn't have any other outlet, they need a different kind of help than the people that they hurt. And the same for the people who are inside the group now who are saying, oh yeah, it happened, but it wasn't that bad, or it didn't happen to everybody. So that somehow justifies or makes it okay, which it doesn't. Um, those people need a different kind of help mm. than what the survivors who were able to tell the truth need. Mm. Um, so you have the truth sayers and then you have the deniers and then you have people everywhere in between where I don't know what to believe and um, which I think I don't know what to believe is a dodge too. You know, it's a sidestep also because it's simple. You believe the victim. You believe the person who tells the story of their victimization. This is built into our whole culture, this denial of the validity of the survivor story. 98% of the women who tell people that they were raped were actually raped. Less than 2% actually created as a story to get back at somebody they know or something like that. But with that 2%, they everybody becomes a liar somehow in in the popular way of thinking but when you take into um your consciousness the truth that 98 percent of people who say they were abused as children or raped as adult women or teenage women or sexually abused 98 percent of them are telling the truth that means virtually everything you're hearing is true mm. and it's just a a, a way for, you know, when we hear about trauma, it's traumatic. And people who work in the business of trauma, I saw it many times over the years. They would hear story after story all day long in their, in their counseling room, and they would burn out. They would get compassion fatigue, secondary PTSD, mm -hmm. and they would have to quit. And there are ways for people who help people to make sure that doesn't happen and to, to you know, take care of themselves. But the, those things are not known by a great deal of um, practitioners and clinicians. So it's important for uh, the victimized people to get to have, uh, you know, socialization, conversations, facilitated groups with other people who suffered the same, or even if it wasn't in the same group. Um, if they have a commonality of experience, they can be very helpful to each other with the right facilitation. Um, but I would have a separate group for those who adapted by um, taking the domineering role. And that's a, a symptom of an injury too. Although most uh, male 
trauma survivors are identified in prison and most female trauma survivors are identified in therapy. So um, we do see a, a, a polarization along gender lines, especially if the primary group leader was a, a domineering man, a narcissist, you know, abusive, that kind of thing. They're children. What else are they going to do? They're going to model uh, their gender, you know, in a lot of cases. And there were people who were um, not uh, identified along gender lines or identified in different ways or were um, gay or lesbian and they were uh, really mistreated as well and told they were outside of what was allowed and abused and shamed and you know so all these different there are so many different survivor groups within this one organization there's people who suffered financial abuse and exploitation people who suffered you know through giving slave labor and being talked down to and there were people who suffered by being children who were uh, abandoned or abused and parents who lost their kids sometimes i i know uh, certain people that i've worked with that say that bajan took their kids uh or they divorced their spouse because they didn't believe anymore and then uh, Baja made the children stay in the in the group and stay with the parent who was staying. Um, yeah. These are all different kinds of traumas. And then the women who were raped, uh, sexually exploited, the teenagers who were groomed for that. Um, there's just so many different. You're saying groups. these are different different classifications of trauma. No, they're not. It's all traumatic. Okay. I mean, and I don't believe in comparing trauma, but sure. there's different themes to the trauma. There's different ways that the trauma happened. It could be uh, financial trauma or uh, uh, a trauma to your self-esteem, or it could be a trauma of having your kids taken away, or for the child, the trauma of being sent away and abused. Um, then the sexual abuse and rape survivors have a trauma from that. Uh, the women have trauma from being objectified by the man. Uh, the marriage rules are traumatic. You know, there's multiple types of trauma within this one group. So I, I want to go there a little more because um, I feel like what happens in conversations in some of these public forums a lot, but specifically say in our, our the youth group that we have, um, that there's like hierarchies of like trauma, meaning a lot of people will kind of context, well, nothing really happened to me, you know, like, well, what happened to me wasn't so bad or whatever. But then in the same sentence, they might say, well, I don't remember most of my childhood either. Um, and, yeah. and I didn't go to India, but I'm noticing this amongst like my peers and different generations, kids where there's just whole large segments that aren't remembered, or somebody will classify that, you know, my experience was good. And yet then it will go, but I also don't remember much, you know, um, and if you could speak to that a little bit, because it's speaking on the different sure. how much, how many levels of trauma that we're all levels of trauma and anyone has trauma, but in a context like this. There are many, many, di many different kinds of trauma. I mean, I remember one um, person telling a story of just suddenly being slapped out of nowhere or hit without any idea it was coming. Um, yeah. You know, there's all just constant kinds of trauma. Uh, there's a trauma of having to try to suppress your identity and suppress your emotion. Mm -hmm. All of it's traumatic. But for children, 
they don't have the same psychology as an adult. They have an immature child psychology. And the way that the psychology of a child works, at least up to the age of about six or seven, is if they get a traumatic event, some huge impact, they will, their psyche will automatically disconnect it the, mm. to protect them so they can continue to, to develop and not have their establishment of their personality, the coming forth of their identity interrupted. But it does interrupt it because it creates a separation within the child. And that's one of the things that I spend a lot of time working with was dissociative states. Um, so, so for certain age groups, seven and younger, they will not have memory. And they won't just not have memory of the trauma. They might not have memory of the whole year in which the trauma happened. Or they might have a three-year gap or, or something, you know, where I just don't remember being that age. Uh, so one of the common questions that we would ask a childhood trauma survivor in, in the beginning of meeting them would be, what is your earliest childhood memory? And you can tell if there's gaps that way and if there's probably might be trauma that is... Um, that they have amnesia for. And then there's uh, older children, they also suppress. What else can they do? They're trying to just survive and, and, and not just be in a constant state of agony. Even adults will do that during trauma. You have to avoid and suppress and deny when the trauma is happening. And those things, um, depending on how severe the trauma is, they can also cause amnesia. Uh, amnesia for specific events or amnesia for certain years of your life. And um, so those people um, have to be considered in it differently. And for a person to say, I'm okay and everything was good and I don't remember anything bad, but then I don't remember several years, that's an indicator of Trump. You're going in and out right now. It happens. I live in a kind of remote. Where I was at was saying that, you know, these children have different adaptations. And then adults have different adaptations, too. Um, two people exposed to the same trauma, one might suppress it and not remember it. And another person might not ever be able to forget it. And so it can be hard to... Um, to uh, understand that they're both survivors. And part of the healing process for people with extreme traumatic exposure is to recover memories and to go back either through trance work or hypnosis or dream analysis, journaling. Um, there's many different methods that can help people reconnect and regain their memories and process the pain. Um, and then adults will have um, uh, sometimes amnesia too, if it was bad enough, if the situation is bad enough. Uh, amnesia is a protection, you know, it's helping us. And yes. dissociation is also quite common where I imagine many of the people when they were children in those circumstances felt like they were just not in their bodies, out of their bodies. And then mm -hmm. I noticed some people will mention that to me uh, in the, when they talk to me about their experiences saying we were not allowed to be in our bodies. We were supposed to always do these practices where you felt like you were out of your body. And that's a whole nother layer in the mix because uh, your body is your world. It's really, really important to your healing and wholeness. 
Um, and the body holds all the memories, mm -hmm. which is why some of the therapies that we know are helpful are body focused, horse mm -hmm. riding, uh, somatic therapy, bioenergetics. Um, I saw powerful things happen with those methods in my clinic and uh, the body is really the master control for you know how we're going to survive and it ha we have to love our bodies and claim our bodies and not be dissociated but sometimes in, in the trauma situation dissociation is a good thing it's important to be able to dissociate i remember years ago i worked um, on a training project with amnesty international where they um, would actually go into the prisons around the world where the, where torture is common and they would teach the prisoners how to dissociate when they were being tortured because for those who couldn't dissociate it was unbearable and so we would teach them how to dissociate so they could survive wow yeah i find that very interesting because once again i i didn't ever context my growing up as a traumatic experience i didn't quote think i had it bad experiences it wasn't until this year that i was hearing the stories of my own peers who did go to India and who did have like real specific experiences, but in their relationship to their lives today, maybe it was in relationship to emotions or, or not getting close, not letting somebody in, in a relationship or relationship with food. And I started feeling and seeing myself in them. And it made me realize, wow, you know, I have had this complex trauma my whole life and I would have never put it in to that I just kind of put it as like that's my personality or that's just who I am I didn't know right. that context from a traumatic quote experience right you can be in a traumatic in an environment in which trauma is happening as a child and it may not be happening directly to you but children are sponges emotional sponges and if your um, parent family members friends community members are experiencing emotion but not able to express it because it's not allowed then the children are going to be the ones taking it on and feeling it mm. and yet no one is going to help you with that because we can't acknowledge it it's not it's not allowed in the group mind to acknowledge you know the child might be traumatized just by the emotional suppression that's going on but uh children really do feel everything the adult is feeling even if the adult thinks they're hiding it from them and they also feel what their peers are feeling and it creates a sort of an insecurity in that child and a feeling of um am i really safe you know is, is, is it really safe? If it happened to this person, maybe it could happen to me. That in itself is a type of psychological trauma. So I wanna ask you about, since all these stories have come out and hearing other people's abuse stories or personal testimonies of their experiences and some people coming out very um, clear and angry and rageful and then other people witnessing that 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 itself can be a very uncomfortable experience to yeah. hear. And, and so what I've noticed is that a lot of times people will just not look at it anymore because it's like too much to handle. And can you speak to that a little bit? Sure, that's a, a, good, um, a good strategy is to, to take steps to um, take care of yourself and don't get overexposed. You know, just like I was saying, the trauma therapists that don't have the right tools and the right setup for themselves, they burn out 
and they have to leave and they have secondary post-traumatic stress. And if you hear enough of these stories, whether you had, uh, you know, a direct big impact trauma, like some of what's being described or not, you're going to have a reaction to it when you hear it. Hearing a traumatic story is traumatic. It, it, we get traumatized from it. We don't get the full impact of the trauma, but because we're open and vulnerable, compassionate and caring humans, we have empathy and we hear the story. And even though we can't fathom it, it's traumatic. And part of the reason that people might say, I can't hear it or I can't imagine it is because that's, a, that's your own protective denial coming into play. Um, it's trying to shut it down because it's, it's overwhelming for you. It's too much. So when you're participating in groups, forums, or listening to these kinds of stories on podcasts or talk, hearing another person talk about their trauma, feel free to do what you need to do for yourself. You know, take a break, step back, don't do it every day. For a lot of survivors, it's a validation at a forum for their voices. And it's very important that they get the opportunity to do that. And survivors nowadays have, have a much um, better options for telling their stories and getting their voices to be heard than they used to before the time of social media. Usually the press won't cover these things. They won't go into depth about it. They don't wanna tell you know, the gory details of what happened to children. Once in a while they will, you know, if it's some big news story or there's a criminal case involved, but there's no doubt that these kinds of cults, uh, groups and high demand groups uh, and specific communities go on all the time in this country and elsewhere in the world and no one even knows about it. So um, when you first start hearing traumatic stories, it's very important for you to take care of yourself. And um, if you're a survivor and you did have similar experiences and you maybe haven't spoken about it and you hear someone, it can be very destabilizing in the short term. You know, it can cause intrusive memories, flashbacks, anxiety states, fear states. Um, it could even border on paranoia. There could be anger at the level of rage or dissociation nightmares, trouble sleeping, all these things are um, common for survivors hearing each other's stories. You know, it's, it's a great relief to let it out and tell your story, but it's a lot of wear and tear um, to tell your story, you know, and it, it has to be moderated in a way that you get a break and you can get some relief from the stress. And I encourage everyone to get uh, some kind of counseling or, or therapy, depending on the level of the trauma and your own personal experience. You know, I did leave the realm of clinical psychology because I found more expansive ways of understanding our human experience and these kinds of events. And there are so much more powerful and, and quick, deep, effective uh, ways to um, go beyond these traumas uh, that you won't find in a in a clinic, and at the same time, it's kind of tough because you're coming out of a group that ha had taken some of these principles and ideas and distorted them, and the last thing you want to hear is, you know, technique, right? <laughs> right, or even a principle or a part of the yogic wisdom because oh, I've heard that before and it was, you know, it was a lie and it wasn't true and. 
um, there's the real, there is the real, and you haven't experienced the real yet. And a lot of people won't want to experience the real, and they don't have to. There's many options for how people can recover. And, um, but having counseling is really good when the stories are first happening or you're hearing all these stories, um, you know, be sure to reach out and find support and go to a safe place with a safe person and process it and learn some coping skills and learn how to manage the episodes. I had a few, um, I have some suggestions that I, I made to cope with the fallout. Yeah, I would ask that real quick because there's a, a fine line, like in one level, don't we don't want people to listen and get re-traumatized or tell their story and be re-traumatized. At the same time, we also want to break the silence and the, right. the discomfort we have of hearing real tales that have happened to each other. And so if you can speak to that fine line, because one, yes, we have to be taking care of ourselves as we're hearing it and exposing ourselves to it so we can see the reality of what took place and not just the whitewash. Yes, and it's also the only place you're gonna be able to get um, a really accurate validation from somebody else who was in the same situation. I mean, your, your therapist and your friends who weren't involved will validate your story and support you and they'll believe you, but you need to hear it from other people who had the same experience because if you were a child, especially, you've been doubting your own experience and doubting your own self. And you've probably been through the shame and humiliation of being told not to speak and all of that. So to have the freedom to speak and tell your story, express your rage, express your emotions, all that is extremely healthy and good for you. And to have a voice, you know, and to hear other survivors recognized and having a voice, it's very critical. And um, at the same time, there's going to be fallout from it. And if we recognize there's going to be fallout, then we can have a plan to deal with that part of it as well. Um, I know that some people who've heard the stories or have their own stories have had uh, trouble sleeping, you know, insomnia and sleep disorders are very common in post-trauma and triggers happen which bring memories or at least uncomfortable feelings, uh, anxiety, um, maybe dissociation, flashbacks, those kinds of things can happen. What happens is that we have suffered trauma. When you've suffered trauma, you have wounds that didn't heal and they were covered over with different kinds of bandages like denial and avoidance and suppression. And when you start to heal, you take the bandages off and it's like the wound is fresh and reopened again. And through the process of um, traumatic stress recovery, whatever form that might take for you, those wounds will heal into scars and the scars will not leave, the scars will be there. You know, like any kind of injury that you've had, it makes, it'll leave a scar once it's not a fresh wound anymore. And the scars sometimes, if the trauma is not too bad, it will over time fade and fade and fade. But for really profound trauma, you're probably gonna have a few of those healed over scars. And it's important to understand when other people deny us or when, other, when the, the people who hurt us don't acknowledge it or when another survivor tells the same kind of story, that scar gets torn open. It's like the world is tearing at the scar and the, all these other people are tearing the scar open again. And 
some people might even tear their own scars open in states of anxiety or, or fear or panic. You know, they'll go right back into the depth of the trauma again. So the important thing to remember is uh, tearing the scar will reopen the wound. So protect your scars and don't tear at your scars and don't allow anyone else to tear at your scars. You know, they're, they're proof that you healed. That's what that scar is. And you're always going to remember it when you feel that scar or think about it. But don't let anyone tear it and don't tear it yourself. And over time, it might fade um, or it might stay. But either way, it signifies healing. A scar means the wound is healed. So right now, the bandages are coming off and the, the pain is acute, you know, and there's lots of infection in there from being ignored. So a lot of things have gotten worse over time. Um, but that's what happens when we say we're getting fallout or triggers or, you know, your wound is open and it's painful. So the one th important thing is to focus on resilience. You know, we have res you have resilience. All survivors have built resilience or we wouldn't have made it through the trauma. So now we need to build resilience to exposure to the traumatic stories and be able to say, okay, I, I, I heard enough of this story and to, to build resilience, I'm going to step away a while and go and focus on other things and uh, things that strengthen me and make me feel good. And then maybe I'll listen to some more again at another time. Um, you can take control of your trauma by understanding what it is and understanding what your options are for healing. So that's a whole exploration you can spend time on. When you learn how to recognize trauma and the effects it's had on you, that's a part of building resilience and acknowledging that and being honest about it with yourself and with others. Um, you're probably already resilient because of the traumas you've endured. So you survived the trauma already. These are just memories of the trauma. And though it feels like it's happening again, it's not. So it's very important. Holding those memories as if they're really happening present day or they can't. Well, that, yeah, that's the essence of a flashback, a dissociative state in which you're fully immersed in the trauma as in, from the past. You're not even in the present when you're experiencing a flashback. You're experiencing the sights, the sounds, the smells, and all the feelings of the past event and you have a, what's called a full sensory flashback going on and that you really need help to come out of that or you need to have effective coping skills uh, to help yourself and I have some of uh, some of those too so you can focus on overcoming your past by focusing on filling your life with present day positivity it's really hard to uh, heal the negative mind and it's not negative, it's just real, you know, it's reality, it really happened, but what happened was very negative. Mm -hmm. And um, the brain is geared toward survival. So if we think about all the bad things, we're really preparing, you know, to say, well, I'm gonna make sure the doors are locked or I better do this, you know, because bad things are gonna happen. And we feel like it's gonna happen again or like it is happening again. Like a vigilant state. Yes, the hypervigilance state is quite common, um, even up to the point of panic attacks. So to learn to center and focus yourself on present positivity, meaningful connections, and love that other people have for you and that you have for them, and, and a purpose 
to your life. You know, this experience that happened to you is not who you are. It's just something that happened to you. And your focus should be on discovering and bringing forth who you are. And, and that it includes leaving it behind at some point because it doesn't define you and it, and it doesn't identify you. It's helpful when you're experiencing it to understand you're the victim of it. The victim is not responsible for what happened to them, for the abuse or the rapes or the, uh, the dysfunction. None of that is their, is their fault. Um, but when you become a survivor and stop being a victim, you realize that you can take responsibility to heal the effects of those past events, mm -hmm. that that's your ownership in your life and who you are. Will you continue to carry around a painful past or will you move forward and become who you are and let it just be a memory from the past? Um, <clears throat> for people with childhood trauma, it's good to go online and t find out your ACE score. ACE is an assessment for childhood trauma, adverse childhood experiences is what it stands for. And it helps you assess what level of trauma you've had because we know there's many different levels of exposure and experience. So you can go to this uh, website called sisterhoodagenda.com. And they're a group of women that spoke, focus a lot on um, women's healing because women have a lot of specific kinds of, of traumas. But the, these, um, uh, the ACE scores is um, applicable to either, either gender. Anyone can take that. And they have it online and you can take it online. It's free. Once you get your score, if it's high, you might uh, feel a bit of denial. Like, oh, I, I didn't think it was, it's not that bad. You know, if you get a really high number on the assessment on your ACE score, you, your tendency might be to deny it and say, oh, it, it couldn't be that bad. Um, or you might say, um, I'm not like other people. I'm doing just fine. You know, all of these statements are that protective mechanism because to realize your trauma is traumatic, mm -hmm. to realize how bad it really was. Um, and so it might bring you a moment of denial when you see that score. Um, but remember, you do not get a high ACE score by yourself. You didn't create that. You were a child when those events happened to you or around you. Right. And uh, dysfunctional and dangerous circumstances were created by the adults around you, whether it was your family, community, or the leader of the group. And you can break that cycle and you can be the revolutionary and give voice to the truth and you can heal and find peace. But get your score because that's gonna help you come to terms with the truth of how, uh, how much those traumatic events impacted you. Um, to manage the triggers, intrusive images, thoughts, nightmares, flashbacks that might come up, be selective in where you want to focus your attention. Um, the stories are important for validation and they're important for the people who tell them and they're important for the people who hear them, but moderate how much attention and time you can give to it and slow down, take a break and, um, you can always go back and listen again, but don't keep pushing yourself if, when you're feeling overwhelmed. Um, watch videos, listen to interviews, and visit social media groups with great discernment. Always have in mind what is in my best interest and try to understand why do I want to see it or why do I want to hear it? 
oftentimes survivors seek and get validation from these kinds of resources of being able to hear other people tell their stories. And they probably also feel supported by their co-survivors and they appreciate the chance for the stories to be finally be told. And um, survivors are really fortunate that they have a voice and they have these forums. But these benefits need to be weighed against the level of the reaction that it might cause for you. And you need to discern what is in your own best interest in the now and uh, act accordingly. So schedule time for those kinds of activities and then take the rest of your time to be with good friends, be in nature, focus on your healing journey and things that really bring you happiness and joy. The only way we're going to get rid of the, the trauma pattern in the brain, the repetition of negative brain chemistry, is to increase positivity. And it takes longer to uh, heal that negative mindset uh, because it's related to our survival instincts. When, if we're going to have to survive something, we have to think about all the bad things that could happen. Um, and so uh, that's automatic. That's instinctive. So when hmm? preservation, yes, yeah, exactly. So we want to be ready. We don't want it to happen again. So we tend to think, you know, uh, this might be a bad person or this might be a bad situation. And how can I be prepared? But we, when you're not in those states, you can do a lot of other things that are focusing on creating positive brain chemistry. And over time, if you persist with it, those positive uh, neurotransmitters will start getting activated and they will ultimately overcome the patterns. And so you won't have intrusive memories or the trauma cycle that goes on of um, you know, being okay and then getting triggered and then having to go through it and then trying to restabilize on the other side. You can actually go beyond that, but you have to focus on increasing the positive brain chemistry when those memories are not happening. When the memories are happening, don't try to force yourself into some positive state. That's the worst thing you could tell a survivor is um, get out of the negative mind. Well, the negative mind is perfectly legit because the situation was highly negative. So don't buy into that. But when you're not having those states where you're processing like that, spend time doing things that trigger positive brain chemistry because the more you do that, the less those states will happen. One great thing that's happening is uh, there's a lot of PTSD apps out there nowadays, and you can download them to your phone. And they have lots of proven techniques that help people get through triggers, flashbacks, feelings of isolation, anxiety, despair, sleep disruption or sleep disorders. They're very specific to trauma. One of the uh, most highly rated one by survivors is called PTSD Coach, and it's put out by the Veterans Administration, but it works with all kinds of survivors, all kinds of survivors use it. There's also one called MIRA, M-I-R-A. It's a trauma and PTSD support app. And then another popular one that's really good is PTSD Hub. So um, <clears throat> those are great to have on your phone. You get triggered. You can, you're feeling uh, anxious or you can't calm down or you're starting to feel like you're gonna spiral into um, you know, a lot of bad symptomology. You can go through the app and find the exact thing that you're, are you having a trigger? Are you having a flashback? Are you having trouble sleeping? And then the app gives you 
active solutions that will stop it or reduce the effects. Find a trauma-informed therapist. And if you can find someone who also has experience with high demand groups, that's really important because there's many really good trauma therapists out there, but they're used to people who had trauma from in their family, like a dysfunctional alcoholic parent, or they had trauma from addiction later, or they had a, a rape or they were in a war. Um, those kinds of trauma uh, scenarios are, quite common for uh, trauma-specific therapists, but high-demand groups is a very different kind of thing because the, the person who needs the healing coming to see the counselor is going to do specific things in relation to that counselor to reestablish their autonomy that other survivors won't necessarily do. And so even if the therapist might listen to them and then say, here's some good advice, they will come back at them and say, um, I don't, I don't need you to tell me what to do. I don't want to hear your ideas because they, that's part of their recovery is mm -hmm. to stop other people from telling them what to do or how to think. Right. Right. So the, 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 the therapist that has experience in working with people from high demand groups will be very good in those kinds of situations because they're not going to be uh, giving too much advice, and they're not going to be reacting if you react that way, you know, like, oh, I'm only trying to help you, you know, it's that you need a specific type of therapist who understands that you're the expert, that you have an experience that the therapist hasn't had, and you have an ex or maybe they have if they have cold experience. Uh, those are the people that, you know, can be the most helpful to you, or at least they have experience helping people from high demand groups. Um, those are the kinds of therapists that I would look for because it's a healthy and healing thing for a high group demand survivor to say to a person in any perceived position of authority, I don't have to listen to what you say. And it's, it helps them heal if you can weave that into the dynamic and give them back the power and let them find their own way you know, or, or, or or offer a variety of options and say, what do you think is best for you? You know, but a lot of therapists don't have that particular training. So try to find that and go to those sessions as long as you feel like you're benefiting. But if you don't really feel like you're benefiting, you don't have to continue therapy. And people that had milder situations or were just peripheral to it or saw some things but rejected it and left, they might not need uh, therapy at all. They might need other kinds of you know, personal growth strategies or uh, self-empowerment um, programs and things like that. Join a virtual support group for trauma survivors. That's another, another good one because people who've had traumatic experiences have a lot in common in terms of how, what the symptoms are gonna be and what the fallout's gonna be that they're trying to cope with and heal from. Um, and explore alternative healing. And this includes um, acupuncture. Interestingly, there's a lot of studies on uh, using acupuncture as an adjunctive therapy for post-traumatic stress, and it really helps. And there are certain acu uh, acupuncturists out there that know how to treat you for traumatic stress, anxiety, uh, adrenaline imbalances, all the things that 
that happen when trauma. Massage therapy is also very good because the body holds the memories and the body has armoring in different places based on how much trauma it's holding. And the physical um, contact of massage makes you feel connected again and wakes your body back up and often releases a lot of memory and a lot of pent up emotion. So it can be very healing. Um, the somatic therapies are similar in that way as well. Bioenergetics, which is a, 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 an uncanny and powerful method of um, holding key points on the body that allow the neurological system to reconnect. The, the trauma is um, sort of burned into your neurological matrix. Trauma's memories are not like regular memories. You know, like you say, oh, I have a memory that I went to the store yesterday and this is what happened. That's a mental memory. A trauma memory is something that the chemistry of stress was so high during the event that the images and words and experience of the event are literally burned into your neurological system. Mm. The chemical overload is enormous. And so the body becomes the container for all the experience. So bioenergetics uses that knowledge to heal the neurological net and bring it back together and reduce the load in places where it's, where it's being held. And people have spontaneous experiences of remembering seeing something and being able to let it go without trauma, which is what makes these uh, somatic and body-based approaches so effective. Mm -hmm. um, I like being in nature. Nature retreats are really good. Horse riding is very good for trauma because a horse is a big, powerful animal that can hurt you and it, it kind of replicate that dynamic. And now you're up on top of it, but you're way smaller and way less powerful. But now you have to master that great power or that great being that has that power, but you can't over control or the horse is not going to like it and you can't under control. So you have to learn this fine holistic kind of physical experiential uh, way of managing uh, great power. And that's a really significant change for trauma survivors to go through. We had equine therapy at my center and I would take the groups of people and individuals and it was amazing uh, how powerful it is. So those are some of the um, tips that I have. It's really, really wonderful and really oh. important. Um, I, I wanted to ask you specifically, like one of the complexities that, that we're experiencing within our community is that it's linked to a very beautiful religion of Sikhi. And it's it, it has this kind of context that kind of, has, I feel like has quote legitimized Kind of allowed people to legitimize our uh, community as not being a high demand or a cult um, mm -hmm. and i wonder if you can speak to that that like one wanting one finding a sense of their identity within say the religious aspect or finding aspects of our upbringing maybe it's not just Sikhi, but other aspects that say brings nostalgia or appreciation or a sense of identity like i'm glad i found this because this is who i am and yet it's within the soup or the swamp of a bunch of other complex trauma experiences. Can you speak exactly. to that? Exactly. That's very common in um, groups that have a guru, an authoritarian guru. Because let me tell you something, 
and I've observed this in many ashrams in India over the years, if that guru doesn't give you something good, no one's going to stay around. So the bad gurus have to give you something good in order to get you to stay. And for a lot of people, it's the, uh, some of the practices because it makes them feel better. You know, like, oh, I got, I got beaten up last night, but then I did some pranayama this morning and I got high, so I feel better. You know, that's not really a solution. And that's not the proper use of those methods. Those methods are not for survival coping in a traumatic environment. Therefore, realizing yourself as, a, as your own authority, as your own, uh, own being and in your own independent state in a healthy and whole way. Um, the religious aspects are always there if it's a religious based group. Um, so even for the people that, you know, where I would, went in and did some interventions with Child Protective to take the children out, the adults would, would say, oh, you know, I, I have such a love of God and I get so much out of these uh, charismatic gatherings, you know, and, and uh, especially among the Pentecostals uh, that I counseled, which that particular group has a lot of uh, issues and trauma, but they believe in um, the Holy Spirit, which is really like saying it's the Kundalini, you know, you can call it whatever you want, but it's the energy that's inside of us that brings us a different state that floods our brain with positive neurochemistry that, or gives us the space to have a realization of something greater than just this human experience. And um, those are the reasons people stay. And those are the reasons people defend it. And those are the reasons people don't want to leave it behind. But here's a reality. Every religion, uh, and I'm going to use this word because this word has a very specific definition, which is the word cult. And it gets thrown around and it always means something horrible or somebody's going to mass suicide. You know, we have all these negative associations with it, but the word comes from culture. It's the root of culture. And when any group of people get together around a culture, and which is what religion is, religion is a culture and a commonality of belief, then that means every religion is a cult. Whether it's a bad one or a good one or a safe one or a dangerous one, that makes the difference. And there's usually, I believe in 3HO, there's probably a mix. I want to say too that there are many uh, traditional Sikhs from India who uh, don't agree that the religion that Bhajan created is real Sikh, is not the real Sikh tradition. Yeah. Well, and so there's a, there's a little bit of that element in there too. And I don't want to leave them out because they feel uh, very um, uh, maligned by it. You know, they feel like their religion has been turned into something it's not. And um, so they're very, that, that's a concern and it's something that probably should be looked at. But when people invent new religions, which is common, uh, groups form around it, people feel positive about it. There's these principles and a certain amount of wisdom and certain practices that, that can actually you know, draw them closer to their own spiritual authority, their own spiritual realization. Um, so those are not uh, experiences to be denied. There, uh, I remember counseling people from uh, different guru groups and they would say, 
but I love this practice or I love this, um, this feeling that I get that I'm close to the divine, that I have a divine connection. And um, that's real. You know, you don't have to give that up, but neither do you have to stay with the group to have it. Mm. And um, you don't have to have all the other stuff with it. You can just enjoy it as an independent thing. Um, I think with some of the practices, it has to be recognized that they were used abusively. Yeah. And some of them are still being used abusively. You know, even as we speak, there's teachers in training that are getting traumatized by the same kind of demeaning language, the same kind of uh, abusive control and dominant attitudes. Um, so it's not over. It's still going on. Yeah, the formula is replicating in other large groups and, and new people, new um, teachers on their pedestals. And you yeah, know, yeah. the formula that, that we're witnessing, that was Yogi Bhajan's formula, is being repeated. I know there's some other really large entities that have branched out whether it's, um, you know, the leader of Satnarma Sayan, which is, I believe, Guru Right, Guru. and a lot of, uh, you know, as I said, the male tendency is to mimic the, the alpha male. And so a lot of these current uh, male leaders of groups who have a lot of followers who believe, you know, that the whole of the tradition is true, which, you know, we have many scholars who have deconstructed it. I lived in a Kundalini ashram for many years. That was my one of my first experiences in India because I knew about Kundalini and I knew it was important to uh, go through a process for that in order to become realized, and which is what it's for. It's not just a class where you get high and you feel good. It should totally transform you and make you loving and kind, compassionate, expansive, free and independent. And That's connected what, to your body. And uh, definitely connected to your body, definitely. Because I think yeah. the experience is that we're more disconnected from our body. We're floating. We're dis We're actually severing our will and disconnecting as opposed right. to standing more in our body. Right. And because Kundalini is a real power, there are many bad gurus who use it to manipulate people. Mm -hmm. And I know Bhajan did that too. He he would. People could get activated from the practices, but no one was ever trained in how to handle an activated kundalini and it was just used as a way to put you in a vulnerable state and you're feeling out of control and there's all this energy some people have neurological damage from it, those kinds of experiences in the group um, i think they would it would be best for people to maybe step out of the organization go to a traditional sikh uh, gurdwara or gathering and then experience, you know, a lot of the same things are going to be in there. It's not like he didn't do anything that was real. It's a mix. Sure. And so if you go to the source, if you really feel drawn to it, go to the source and learn the actual tradition. It could be very fulfilling for you. Um, or with the Kundalini path, go to the real Kundalini path. Find out what it's really about. No one wants to control you. Kundalini is about liberation liberating you and no limitations and no rules and no control and just you and your own inner authority activated as a divine person a person who has realized themselves as something more than what they thought they were and uh, those traditions are so rich and full of amazing beautiful empowering transformational experiences and it's not just a temporary high 
you know, you're going to be high the rest of your life <laughs> because you're going to realize, you know, this belongs to us, oh, our right. energetic experience, our frequency, and it's our divine right to be in this body with, with that energy flowing through us because it's our soul's divine experience to embody here. Right, exactly. And there's lots of places you can learn the methods and you don't have to pledge allegiance to any teacher or any system. Um, that's sort of rather the opposite of what I learned in India. You know, and they have a lot of these little sayings in the practices too, like uh, keep up and keep going. And, um, you know, uh, if you think you can't go on, do go on, mm -hmm. you know, and these are not good you're advice. Not your body, you're not your mind. That's go right. Beyond, right. Right. But you are your body and your mind. The whole idea of spiritual enlightenment isn't to say, I'm not this. It's to say, I am this and I'm everything else too. Um, but the realizations happen inside the body. It's a biopsychological event. So it's biological and psychological and spiritual. Um, so there's a lot of these uh, false ideas that have been embedded into those practices. And that's not the real Kundalini path. So I would encourage people, if you feel, feel good and you get spiritual sustenance and you feel nourished, by some of these practices that are embedded either in the uh, 3HO version of Sikhi or in the Kundalini Yoga mix of, of practices, then go away from that and go and find the, the root and the origin and find um, how you can go deeper into it. Because um, I know that many people have had that experience and they feel they're very devoted to the Sikh religion. But it, it has to be remembered. It's um, somewhat of a cultural appropriation that happened. You know, just like with the whole yoga asana scene that I came back to, I was like, oh my God, they've taken one thing that's maybe 2% of the whole path and made it the whole thing. And it's all about glorifying the body, which is not the point, you know? Right. Like we have to go away from ego in yoga. We have to go away from ego. but. Uh, all this is designed to, to, to sustain ego and get people hooked in by their egos and, and all of that. So if you're drawn to that and that's good for you and you feel good about it, then keep on doing it. But, you know, understand there's a, a tradition that existed a long time before that particular version of it. And it would be great if you could get in, uh, a little experience of that culture too. And the same with the Kundalini. It's not asanas <laughs> or just a collection of practices it's a or it a, wasn't made a you know that yogi bhajan didn't deliver a formula that's the right one i think that's a really big part of the indoctrination when it comes to the teachings that these formulas work in a particular way and you have to do it this way in order to get this result and to be able to stop that and actually go to like say the source of like really learning about kundalini energy as an energy in and of itself or learn Sikhi outside of the context of how it was taught within the Western world is a really important way to get to the essence of the real context of truth of where it comes from, as opposed to the fragment of truth that we got delivered to us. Exactly. And thank God you got that fragment though. I mean, it's a blessing that you got some good things and people got good things from it. And like I said, no, no one's going to keep on going to a bad guru who's just 100% bad all the time. 
if he's not giving them something good, they're not going to stay around. So you can't deny that there's some good things that happen, but you have to decide, do I want to get these good things on my own as an independent being whose birthright it is to have these abilities and awaken, awaken myself and awaken my body in this way? Or do I have to be subject to rules and control and high demand and conformity, which is the opposite of an awakened Kundalini, you know? That we don't conform. <laughs> Kundalini yogis and yoginis don't, are nonconformists. You know, they're outside the norm. They've gone beyond the restrictions of cultural conditioning and mind conditioning and you know social programs and all of that. So, you if you really want to get the fullness of these little bits that you got, take it uh, from somewhere that doesn't have this container. You know, like go step out of the box and go and explore the source because uh, you know you can go to a, any uh, traditional Sikhi gathering and uh, they're not going to force you to do anything you know they're just going to let you do their thing with them and there's not going to be any requirement you know I suppose that every religion has its requirements and that is because the word religion means to bind and it's to bind you to a set of rules and bind you to a certain way of thinking. And uh, although I, they, they say it's to bind you to the divine, you don't need to be bound to the divine. It's not outside of you. It's inside of you. And no, no person outside of you can give you the keys to open that door. Only your own authority can give you those keys and open those doors for you. And so if you did get something good, then go and find the rest of it, <laughs> you know, go and find how it can really serve you and how it can really awaken you and step into a bigger truth. Thank you for that. I know that has really been uh, my experience and really just because my soul led me there. It was before all this happened and I just, you know, got a message like you need to stop practicing. And I was like, why? You know, like I thought this was, this was my way to connect. And it was such weird a message to get that. And then when I did listen to that, the message was because I couldn't actually feel my emotional body. And so I had to stop the practice in order to really notice what my system was feeling. I didn't, I was so locked in. I thought that practice was a source of my connection, but in reality, my connection was my connection. I had to actually stop the extreme discipline or what I call the extreme use of my third chakra, like over-disciplined in my will that actually forced me to not feel what myself. And I had to stop practicing entirely in order to start drawing back in the things that were loving, the things I loved. Like I love chanting. I love meditating. I love so much of the way I was raised in terms of different true uh, aspects we got and yet I had to kind of push them away in order to let my soul draw them back in right and for them to become a part of your life and a part of your healing by your own authority yeah. not by some not by force not by conditioning not by conformity but um to to I mean the whole path of yoga is for liberation mm -hmm. not for attainment of more rules you know, like we have already too many rules and I'm a big believer in um, no rules. Now, that doesn't mean you don't have discernment, 
And discernment is really important for, for liberation as well. Discern what serves your liberation and what doesn't. Discern what is true and what isn't. Um, discern what is good for you and what's not. What mm -hmm. is really going to serve your highest good and what is just a temporary uh, good feeling, you know. And that what um, might be good for us right now might be, will we'll change. And so by knowing our own pulse of knowing, we can feel that resonance along the way. Right. The most important thing is to become who you really are, mm -hmm. free from all this programming, free from all conditioning, free from anybody else's opinion or ideas. Mm -hmm. To be here for what you're here for is to express fully who you are and to bring your diverse gifts and essences into play in the whole of the interplay of life. And that's so important. And if a path does not uh, empower you into that, it's probably not a path worth pursuing. Mm, thank you. So is there any other aspect that you feel like you want to share with listeners? I mean, you know, the conversations that are being had and, and what people are probably experiencing more than I do. I do. I just want to come back around to one thing, which is for people who have loved ones or friends that are still there and what can they do uh, for them? How should they interact with them? You know, like people don't necessarily want to cut off contact with their loved ones or their friends just because they've decided I can't do this anymore. But they might be concerned, is that friend ever going to get the chance to get to that exit point, you know? And there are specific ways to deal with those people. So I did uh, want to share a few of those. So, but it has to be said first, before you start thinking about positioning yourself to be a, of a, a, a source of benefit or help to somebody still in there. If you are a co-survivor of that same group, you need to talk to an exit counselor or a high demand counselor uh, that understands what might be happening in your own mind that you might not yet be aware of, or talk to some other experts regarding the best way forward for yourself. That's the most important thing. The number one person that you were born in this life for is you. Everybody else is a, just a reflection of that or an opportunity to become more of that. Whether it was a bad or a good experience, we can still become more of who we really are from those experiences. But don't try to continue, don't continue to try to connect with other people still involved if it's too soon for you. You have to really go through your own healing first. Or if it causes you stress or causes you uh, triggers or extreme emotions. For example, you suffered abuse or neglect and your, your friends or family there that you're concerned about knew about it, but they still deny your injuries. You don't, that's not gonna be helpful for you. You don't need to help them. You need to help yourself. Mm -hmm. um, so when you do decide that you wanna be in a position where you could be helpful for them, you need to remember to ask them questions when you have conversations and not make statements. So instead of saying, um, uh, you know, this is the way this is, this is, or I heard this happened, ask it as a question instead, because questions make us reflect internally. And you have that chance to help them shift out of that group mind by asking questions that, that gives them the chance to self-reflect and go deeper inside of themselves and beyond the 
programming of the mind, group mind. Um, um, so don't make direct statements like you're in a cult or um, because they've already been programmed to reject that. Right. Every person who's in one of these groups is told immediately, people are going to say you're in a cult and it's not true. So nobody wants to be identified like that. That word is very um, volatile and it means it doesn't mean and people don't mean it in its true meaning anymore, which has to do with a group that creates its own culture. Yeah. Okay, so um, try asking questions about specific parts of the beliefs. For example, your guru has said that women should be beaten so uh, before sex so they enjoy sex more. I don't know what to think of that. Can you explain it to me? And give them the chance to reflect on that and figure out how would they explain that? You know, it's, they're going to hit their own values when they get a question like that. So that's what you want to do. You want to help them by asking them questions that lead them into their values, their own true values. Mm. Um, or ask your loved one to take a vacation with you. This is a common way to help people get out. Um, make it a destination that's hard to turn down. Like, I just bought two tickets for Hawaii and I want you to come with me. Um, and give short notice on the departure date. Like, it's a day after tomorrow, I'll come and pick you up or I'll meet you at the airport because then they won't have time to check with the rest of the group. They have to decide, you know, make the commitment right away. And then if you can find a destination without phones or internet service. So they get time away from the group with no communication from the group. This is the number one thing people need when they get out of the group. They need time away from the group to stop having their input. And when we have just that time, even you don't even have to say anything to them, let them lay on the beach and play in the water and not have messages from the group. It gives them a chance to take a break. And that, in, that, in that period of a break, new ideas can arise. Their own feel, true feeling, like, what am I doing there? I could be doing this instead. You know, you're making an opportunity, whether they take it or not is on their side. Um, and be kind and patient. Don't cut off contact. Don't give ultimatums. If you really want to keep open the door that they could leave, don't close the door. Um, and remember, expectations lead to disappointment. So don't have any expectations. Just do it without attachment. Um, your friend or loved one might not be ready to leave the group right now when you think they should. Um, find ways to support them where they're at. Like say to them, I'll always be your friend, or I'll always be your, your family, I'll always be your sister, or I'll always be your son, or whatever it is. And if you need anything at any time, just let me know. Well, that's going to be in their mind, you know, and that's going to leave the door open when, if they feel like, I do want to leave, then they'll call you because you've said that to them. Mm -hmm. So we just have to create opportunities for loved ones that, or friends that are still there. Um, you know, in some of these cases, I have to add, there is um, actual criminal uh, activity that has happened. Child abuse is illegal. Knowing about child abuse and not reporting it is illegal. Rape is a crime. Assault is a crime. Um, financial exploitation is a crime. Um, unpaid labor is a crime. 
So when you're talking about a group like that, where this kind of thing has gone on and continues to go on, you need to be mindful of that truth. This is criminal activity and these people are continuing it. And there's probably also some fraudulent misrepresentations going on. For example, if you go to the 3HO website, they still have the same glorifying stories of Yogi Bhajan there, even though all of this has come out. So it's gonna be a long process for them to disrupt if they're going to self-disrupt, which is extremely hard to do. Usually you need uh, external help to disrupt and disruption is a good thing. And I encourage survivors to self-disrupt, disrupt yourself, let go of the old programs, let go of the old ways of thinking, just disrupt yourself and you'll unveil something more true and more real. Um, so that, that, those uh, understandings are integral to healing and also integral to finding the right solutions for all the survivors. Yes. I think what you're bringing up is really important because there's so many of us that have people we love that are making choices that are different than our own. And in whatever level we're able to acknowledge our own trauma, even if we didn't have specific instances growing up in a complex traumatic environment, especially as the children that are born into it, we don't have a before scenario. Right. We only know the environment of the context in which we are raised. And in my experience, it's like being marinated yeah. in an environment where you've made things okay because you don't know otherwise. Right. It's traumatic also. Like, let's not compare trauma. Never compare trauma. Because once a trauma happens, no matter what it was, you still have the same impacts. So you'll have that in common. So never think, oh, this was the worst trauma or nothing really that bad happened to me. Well, I don't um, want to tell my story because it wasn't as bad as so-and-so's. Right. Or, you know, I'm so lucky that I only got beaten three times or thank God I was only raped once or, you know, that's ridiculous. We can't compare trauma. Trauma is trauma. If you had trauma and you have reactions to it, then that's all it takes. You don't have to justify it or rationalize it or have it be good enough. That's part of the group mind. What's traumatic for a lot of people in these kinds of groups, especially those born into it, is that you don't get freedom of thought. Mm. And you can't think of what you want to do. You can't execute your own will. You have to conform. You have to cover your hair. You have to go to these uh, meetings or practices. You have to take cold showers. You have to eat what we say. You don't have a freedom. And that is a type of trauma to not be able to be free to explore a world of ideas, examine your own thoughts and ideas, follow your own will, figure out who you are without all these imprints. So don't say, you know, nothing really bad happened to me. You lost your ability to become yourself as a child, which is what childhood is about. Mm -hmm. The parents should be nurturing that individual soul to, be, to come into its fullness and not uh, trying to program it into some external thing. The child is not the parent. Um, and a lot of parents don't have good boundaries and people in group uh, situations like that don't have good boundaries. And there's just the principles and the philosophy, and we're all subject to it. And that in itself is traumatic. Mm. It's not either in, neither is that the way to any kind of enlightenment. Mm. Enlightenment means you're free to be 
complete and be yourself. And uh, so, so that's an important thing to remember. If you were there for any length of time and you, were, you complied with everything and you didn't like it and you left because you didn't like it and then you realized a lot of things about what had gone on, okay, you're all right, you know, you're on the right track. But if you were born in it or your family's still in it, it's a whole different thing. You were subjected to every bit of mind control from the time you were born. There have been cults, and there's this is what's called a particular group is still active, in which the leader is a you know maniac narcissist, which they usually are, and he records recorded these hours and hours of him talking about all the beliefs and everything that's right and everything that's wrong. And the parents are required when they have a baby to put headphones on the baby every night when they go to sleep and play this stuff from the leader into those little babies' minds from the time they're born. So, uh, you know, these, this is trauma. This is not tra just trauma. This is identity theft, you know, the robbery of your essential self and the loss of your essential self. Um, and thank God that, you know, some of these survivors are, have, are very strong and very able to, to stand up and say it wasn't right and I don't accept it. And anybody who says they accept it, I don't accept them either. Mm. You know, you can totally understand how, you would, how a person feels that way and it's healthy for them to reject everything um, and to want other people to reject it too. Um, but we have to understand the, the various groups, you know, those that are in denial, uh, those that are attacking the victims, those who are the victims, those who think they were a victim, but maybe not bad enough, those who lost money, those who lost marriages, lost their children, uh, children who lost their parents, you know, these are extreme and difficult traumas to overcome, but that's exactly what's happening. The more survivors speak out, the more they come together, the more they pursue passionately the attainment of themselves, mm. the, the better they're going to become and the more free they're going to be. Wow. Thank you. Um, yeah, I just want to let that land. It's a lot. It's a lot. Good. I know um, in, your, in your early life as a psychotherapist, um, you counseled like children of like mass shootings, like other like scenarios that weren't necessarily like high demand groups as well. Are there other like um, s similarities or, or thoughts on trauma from like incidences like that, that you want to kind of throw in here? Well, you know, a traumatic event is something that is not normal and it's an abnormal situation. So when we have a reaction to it, we're not um, psychologically dysfunctional. We're having a normal reaction to an abnormal situation. And for little children that are exposed to trauma, like in some of the mass shootings that I've dealt with, there were children present. Um, they, they really uh, get you know, pretty intensely affected. Like we said, you know, like they automatically suppress I remember a little four-year-old boy who had been in a mass shooting and he was brought to my debriefing team 
and he, because he wouldn't, he, he lost his language, he lost his ability to talk. And he would just say, bang, bang, you know, like that was all he could say. And he was in a, in a catatonic shock state. And so with children, we did things like, uh, you know, let's draw pictures and uh, let's play in the sand and play with toys. And then the child will start to act out or draw uh, the traumatic event. Mm -hmm. And then as they do that, they regain the ability to express. And once they regain the ability to express, then we help them put words with it. Um, it's very common, sadly, in this country that children get exposed to these things. But think about all the kids in school that haven't had a mass shooting, but yet they have to have drills for mass shootings. The amount of traumatic stress that puts on them, like hide under your desk and don't unlock the door and, you know, wherever you're at, stay there and lock the door and, you know, pretend the shooter's out there. What a ridiculous way for children to be raised. But in the, uh, the Bajan group, it, the children had, you know, constant trauma too. If it's a shooting, it's a, hopefully a one-time thing. But imagine if you had to go have to be a child and see a shooting every day. Right. You know, and there are children like that. The average age of a child in Los Angeles the average age at which a child witnesses their first murder in South Central LA is six. Wow. By the time they're six, they usually witness their first killing. Um, we live in a, in a dualistic world full of light and shadow. Yeah. And um, we're going to encounter shadow no matter what. I've heard every story you could possibly imagine of the, the, negative manifestations of shadow and the polarization of darkness. Um, and the important thing to remember is it doesn't put out your light because light puts out the darkness. So recovery is not only possible, I think it's also initiatory. You know, our, our trauma journey takes us from one level of, you know, rather restricted and simplistic understanding into a vaster understanding of the nature of shadow and the power of the light. And I think that we have to remember that. We have to remember that this is a hero's journey, not a victim's journey. Yes. And I wanted to specifically bring that up because a lot of times as we're talking about the stories in the context of our community of 3HO Kundalini Yoga, I'll hear people be like, but you know, the world is going through this. You know, this happens all over the world. And it's like, yes, you know, we're this microcosm and it's happening in this macrocosm, but it doesn't diminish the importance of addressing what's happening in our community specifically or in our personal experience, just because it's also happening on a large scale. Right, then that's the other piece of, you know, what I was saying that you can't compare trauma. Trauma has the same impact, no matter what the trauma was. You're probably going to have memories that either are repressed or intrusive. You're going to have anxiety states, depression, trouble sleeping, nightmares, flashbacks, difficulty in relationships, trouble trusting other people. You know, those are all normal reactions. They are not psychological dysfunction. PTSD is the only diagnosis in the DSM that is called a normal human reaction. So remember that. Mm -hmm. uh, we are right to react normally to abnormal situations. We are right to say, 
wow, the impact of that was so intense. And it's not right. What happened is not right because we're, we're hurting. And so many people are hurting from all these different traumas. Yeah. Um, for survivors, it's really important sometimes to just uh, get away from the world. You know, when I went into my five-year sadhana after being in clinical practice 14 years, having had my own trauma, having listened to stories that, you know, if I told you, you would get trauma from them. I just needed to disconnect from the world at that point. I, I didn't read newspapers. I didn't watch any screens. I didn't socialize. I focused on my practice and my healing and my horses and nature and uh, my, my spiritual mentors who were you know, really on track and really had traditions that were liberating. And um, my whole world changed. So, you, don't, you know, nothing is forever. Your childhood, it wasn't forever. It probably seemed like it at times, you know, like, oh, this is my life. Is it ever gonna change? Or that but, it's still playing out now. That can feel exhausting too, that they're trying. Yes, well, it's a, that's the other thing. You know, we can't start to recover until the trauma ends. We, we, we couldn't go into the scene where the shooting was happening and start counseling people right then. We have to wait till the bullets stop, you know, or the perpetrator is dead or arrested. And now we can go and help them. Um, but we can't help anyone or no one can heal when the trauma is happening. When the trauma is happening, you have to survive and you have to use whatever you use to survive, whether it's dissociation or amnesia, repression, uh, rage episodes, however you cope with it, um, you have to survive. And that's what you did to survive. And there's everything you do to survive is legit. You know, it's, it's okay. You don't have to judge yourself for it. Um, but after the trauma, when the trauma ends, then the healing can start. But for so many people in the 3HO community, it hasn't ended because the thing is still going on. And the stories about the greatness of the abusive leader are still out there. And there's still people that are creating new groups based yeah. on the same stuff and treating people in the same way. And then you have the whole inner circle that, you know, I don't really understand what they think they're doing with these um, olive branch report. You know, we're going to restrict it to a certain kind of victim. And you're the only ones that can be a part of the process. And that's not helpful. And then if you're, a ch if you're a child of the organization and you got hurt in that process, then the only place you can tell your story is to their lawyer, which is completely unethical and inappropriate. Um, and this uh, new process they just introduced, the restorative justice. I saw restorative justice programs. I testified for a lot of victims in court. I had families that wanted to do restorative justice with the perpetrator once they were in prison. But there are certain things that are required for restorative justice. First of all, a thorough investigation of all the crimes mm -hmm. and a gathering up of all the people who committed them or were complicit in them. And then all of those people facing that reality and admitting their guilt. The person who commits a crime or is complicit in committing a crime has to admit their guilt. That's number one in restorative justice. And when you have offenders who do that, then we can bring the restorative justice team in and the victim can go and visit them in prison and we can facilitate uh, some kind of restoration between uh, them and, and the perpetrator. But um, 
they don't seem to be have finished investigating. I haven't heard a thorough investigation of this school the children went to. It's still operating. Uh, what about all the people who were involved in that? Have they been uh, talked to? Should they be investigated? Should they be looked at? We haven't heard maybe all of the stories. We, they haven't looked into the, um, you know, uh, the financial exploitation that went on of a lot of the members. Um, you know, so we haven't even had a thorough investigation. So it's not time for restorative justice yet. And we don't have an admission of guilt from those who were complicit. So I don't understand, uh, you know, what they're doing. I don't see any um, professional basis to feel like you can trust it. I, I would advise survivors to get together with each other and find your own attorneys and find out what your options are. Because um, even though if you get a day in court, it doesn't solve your trauma, it brings a closure to the trauma and then the healing can start. But right now the trauma hasn't finished. Then the survivors who are spoken out, though they're benefiting from that and they're getting help, they're still being denied by uh, key, you know, certain people within the organization. And um, that means the trauma hasn't ended. So it, something, diff something different needs to happen on the side of the offending organization in order for um, any kind of process to start. Yeah, that makes total sense. Thank you for that context. Yeah. Thank you for all of this. Um, I really, I, I really know it's beneficial for the listeners, for everybody listening, for myself, for all of us to just get a real trauma-informed perspective and um, to learn how to take care of ourselves in this process of listening as well as speaking out, especially in a long culture of of um, of not having the practice of of speaking about anything. Exactly. Yeah. It's, it's really, really an important time right now for the voices of the survivors to be heard. And if uh, people are in a denial state where they don't feel they can hear it, don't listen to it. But don't listen to it and then attack the survivor. That's not appropriate. Mm -hmm. you, know, you can deny if you have to deny, but you don't have to um, uh, you know, put more trauma on the survivors. It's re-traumatizing, you know, so many elements are like revisiting the whole thing all over again. And people are very frustrated that they don't see any real change happening. They just see, you know, this group of people who are injured, you know, they're, they're injured. They have their own situation with what's going on in their own minds, in their own community. They're still there. And um, they're the ones that are trying to figure out what to do, but that's not appropriate either. There should be some outside help that's objective, that's brought in, that's not these you know, smoke and mirrors kinds of things to facilitate something for the core group first to help them come to terms with the truth. And from there, they can structure. Then they should bring in the survivors and the people that left and the people that know what actually happened and then let them decide what they want to do going forward it's not um you know you've been told what to do by this group for so long they should not be dictating what your recovery looks like or what justice means to you that should be defined by the survivors mm. yes 
Yes, yes. And is it a natural response if one is a survivor, meaning we're all survivors on some level, right? We're all survivors. <laughs> right. We're surviving. You're specifically like, say, those that were like specifically abused, raped or, or specifically abused by Yogi Bhajan. Um, uh, is it normal to to want to jump right to how can we fix this? Like, okay, yes, we're acknowledging it. Now, how do we move forward? Is that a normal response? And, yeah, in a way, I mean, I see it as a, a disingenuine because um, they haven't fully realized it. They haven't acknowledged all the different kinds of abuse that happened. They just focused on this group of uh, people that said, uh, Yogi Bhajan was sexually abusive with them or he raped them. And that's a, one part of the problem, you know, but there's many other uh, traumas that happened. Yeah. And they have just sort of, you know, what are they doing? Sweeping that under the rug and saying, okay, now we know that Yogi Bhajan did this and it's all on him and none of us had anything to do with it. And this organization, the way it's run, doesn't have anything to do with it. Um, and know. so now we, we can just fix it, you know, we can just have bring these people in and everything will be fine and we'll leave Yogi Bhajan behind and we'll just carry on the way we have. Yeah, which um, that's not healthy. Mm. It's not healthy for them, let alone the survivors. Yeah, they, they really need to call in outside objective help like an actual, you know, firm that does actual legal investigations and find out what really happened and the whole extent of it. And, you know, be prepared to, to hear all those truths. If you really wanna have reconciliation, you have to have truth first and you have to have the whole truth and not just a part of it. Um, yeah, I, I appreciate that it puts them in a, in a tough position in terms of their, um, their enterprises and their businesses. Um, but, you know, what do they say? Karma is a bitch. Right. right. Yeah. I mean, Jack Nicholson movie. You can't handle the truth. You know? <laughs> right. You know, it's, it should be approached. Uh, we should think of them, you know, as generously as we can. So if you start condemning them and calling them names, you're not, you know, you're not, that's not going to change them. Um, but perhaps the survivors can get together on their own separate from the organization and figure out what they want and what that what that justice would look like to them, what healing means to them. Um, I would have never recommended any of my clients from mass traumas, group traumas uh, caused by a core group or a core person to let that core group or core person tell them what justice is going to be. They need we they deserve justice, real justice. And that starts with the whole truth and the truth of every story and the truth of every abuse and the truth of every trauma. And um, from there, then respectfully, we should listen to the survivors and what they think is the right solution for them. Um, yeah, it's, a, it's complicated and it's difficult, um, but there's simple solutions that are built in for these kinds of scenarios. And I encourage survivors to avail themselves to those systems. If a group of survivors get together and they go to a, an attorney, they can at least get the download on what their options are. 
instead of being handed a solution that is a, a doesn't even encompass the whole of the problem. Do you know what I mean? Does that make sense? Makes hundred percent sense. Yeah. And thank you for saying it because this has been spoken in some circles, but it hasn't been spoken in a, in a public domain. And I let, I, this is a very important point. Well, it's not easy for them to know what to do. Right. I mean, right. I, so how like, can, yeah, I think it's a, I think it's putting a lot, they're putting a lot on themselves to say, we're going to be the ones to figure out what to do about it because they have, a, they have their own impacts that they have not yet acknowledged. Hmm. And then they also have the fact that they were involved, you know, and that they're still complicit to some extent because they're still promoting the same stuff yeah. and still drawing more people in. And, you know, uh, it's very difficult to get a big money-making high demand group to stop. Uh, you know, the, the biggest religions operate that way and you can't get them to stop. You know, what happened with the Catholic Church and the abuse of all the children? Right. Nothing. Or Scientology you know? or any of them, right? Right. And so drivers have to live with that and they have to find ways to come to terms with that. We don't always get justice. We don't always get acknowledgement from the people or the systems that hurt us, that they actually did it. You know, sometimes they will just ignore us and sometimes they will just turn their backs. And sometimes they will condemn you or call you names and they'll just go on doing what they do. And that's a part of our journey into healing to realize whatever they're doing, it's not about you anymore. You're free now. Mm. And you can, you can take that freedom and turn your back on it and walk away and don't look back. There's plenty of it out there. And, you know, we can someday maybe, uh, be able to hold light on it, you know, and to say, I, I, I pray for all the people that are stuck there. You know, I feel sorry for them. I feel compassion, but you can't come to that right now. You know, there has to be time for the tears and the pain, the anger, the grief, the rage, the, the guilt, you know, whatever it is. And uh, it takes time. And when you have an active group that's continuing, um, it, I think it takes a little bit longer. And to realize that these kinds of things are not going to stop. We, you know, we're not here to stop them. We're here to, to use these experiences to face the shadow and to decide to turn toward the light. Mm. You know, I think if we don't, if we didn't suffer, we wouldn't seek something else. And, um, you know, I don't, th I don't, I'm a non-dualist at this point. And I feel very much like, um, you know, it's just all one part of, it's all a part of one big thing. And that thing has to do with you. It yeah. has to do with your destiny, your life, who you are. Yes. And that's your main focus. Bring forth who you are and forget about those people who seek to tell others who they should be. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. This has just been such a wonderful episode, uh, healing and supportive. Um, I'd love to move into your song. Would you like to um, offer up, uh, you know, you wrote a little dedication, but would you like to speak it and share why you chose this song? Sure. Um, I chose the song Come Healing by Leonard Cohen. And I choose, chose that for a uh, song because 
it makes so many good points, you know, that we, we can't stop the injury and we can't make grace happen either. You know, we're, we have to just remember the healing and remember to bring it into our whole selves. So I, I would dedicate this song to all the survivors, to all of the children who are hurt, who still live inside the adults who are facing the consequences. Um, to all the families who were affected, to those who left and declared the truth long ago, to those who more recently are declaring the truth, and to those who are in the group still and in denial, they need healing too. And to those who are abusive to others, they also need healing. And those who were uh, hateful toward the victims I think they need healing too. And those who are continuing the same behavior, if they would get the healing, we would save so many victims. You know, one thing I did when I, when I worked in the field, and especially um, in India with the gurus, was I realized um, if you don't help the abuser, if they can be helped, and they can't all be helped by any means, but if you don't help them, you're going to keep on seeing hundreds of victims. The average uh, perpetrator has 72 victims. So I would have 72 people to help get recovery. And if I could somehow help that perpetrator, um, then there wouldn't be those 72 victims. And, and I spent a long time studying that and getting involved with prison groups, you know, that would try to and it's really hard. Um, and with the big gurus, it's really hard also um, because they're narcissistic and narcissists don't think, you know, to say, I need help, there's something wrong with me. They think I'm superior, I know everything. So it's really hard to help them, mm -hmm. but I would still dedicate the song to them too. And maybe if not this life, next incarnation, they might be on the other side of that treatment and then they would need the healing and they'll be ready for it. Mm. So um, that my heart goes out to everyone involved and um, there is enough love for everybody. There's no shortage of love. And this song really touches my heart and the way that it speaks to the journey of the survivor without giving up hope. And it's a prayer and a blessing and a wish that I have for everyone and the 3HO family, no matter what. Thank you. And for listeners, we won't listen to the whole song for copyright purposes, but I do want you to know that a playlist for the Uncomfortable Conversations uh, podcast has been started, so you will have a chance to listen to all of the songs that have been included on every episode in full when you listen to it directly on Spotify. All right, let's listen to this song. And here we go. Gather up the brokenness, bring it to me now. The fragrance of those promises you never dared to vow. The splinters that you carry, the cross you left behind.
will see the darkness yielding that tore the light apart. Come healing of the reason, come healing of the heart. Oh, trouble of dust concealing an undivided love. The heart beneath is teaching to the broken heart above. so beautiful i hope everyone gets a chance to listen to the whole song because it's um so appropriate to the situation and i pray that everyone gets the healing they deserve thank you again jotima it means so much for us to be able to hear uh, your lens and to get your expertise and your wealth of knowledge and shadow and light and psychotherapy and all of the range of your lived experience. And thank you for taking this amount of time for all of us. Um, blessings and gratitude. Thank you so much. And thank you for all the work you're doing and lots of love and light to every single person that has been affected by this tragedy. This has been another episode of the Uncomfortable Conversations podcast, the untold stories of the 3HO Kundalini Yoga community. I'm your host, Guru Nishan. If you are interested in being a guest speaker, please reach out to me at gurunishan.com for more information and contact me. Thank you and talk to you soon.